Curiosity. Kill the rat. Curiosity. Kill the rat. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Curiosity Killed the Rat. My name is Matt. I am a science enthusiast. I'm recording from lands whose traditional custodians are the Noongar people. And I am joined as always by my co-host. No adjectives today. Oh, for adjectives. <laughs> my really co-host, horrible. the one who's trained and paid to do the science. Hey. <laughs> Oh, not paid nearly enough, I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> and I'm also, you know, relatably too tired for... Oh my gosh. Too tired for words, except for all the words that I'm about to, like, hurl in your direction. Because it's the end of the year, but it's poor. <laughs> but before I, I launch into my words, um, I'm not in the same place as you, Matt. I am no. recording from lands traditionally owned by the Wurundjeri people. Um, over east here in Nam, Melbourne. Land. Yeah. I was there um, not too long ago. Yeah, yeah, it was real swell to have you. And I just haven't posted like any of the photos from that um, of us actually together in the same place on the podcast social media yet. And mm. well, probably by the point of release of this episode, I will have, um, which is yeah. Yeah, about a week from now. So hello, everyone about listening a week from, now. from a, a week in the future or, or more. Perhaps actually, if it you was cool driving around um, on New Year's Eve, regional Victoria, and like seeing the different um, like entering into different um, Indigenous land, Indigenous countries around mm. the place, and they actually had that signposted, whereas we mm. don't have that as much over here in WA. Like, when I mm. always do that in the intro and I say um, the Noongar people, um, Noongar is just a broader collection which ultimately describes the entire southwest corner of WA in which mm. there are a few um, smaller, um, more individual kind of communities and tribes and locals and stuff, but all of them uh, do, I, t- to my knowledge, if anyone mm. knows different from this and wants to correct me, let mm. me know, because I don't want to be have, saying the wrong yeah, thing, but um, all fall under um, and the identity of the Noongar people. So there is a more specific one that I think I could say for, you know, when I'm recording in Dwelling Up versus recording in Fremantle, mm. um, but... I don't know it. And when I've tried to look it up online, honestly, the resources have been kind mm. of vague and given me different results. So that's why mm. I always say Noongar, but I will say that is a larger collective than um, I think what you're saying with the Wurundjeri versus. Yeah. Well, I think the Wurundjeri is a larger, well, you, it's actually the, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. Um, and mm. then I think there's also the... Oh, there's another one that's like within Melbourne that is separate. So where I am specifically up in in the north is is the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung. Um, but yeah, there's different different things that I go to and different things I interact with uh, break it down in different levels of detail. That yeah, similar to you, I I don't like how much I don't quite understand it, but I'm yet to find. Um, but perhaps that's on me, and I spend all this time researching science and drugs, uh, and not perhaps not enough time researching that. So maybe that can be a New Year's resolution for me: is to mm. uh, become more familiar with how the different breakdowns of the indigenous areas work. Because yeah, I am genuinely when we acknowledge this on purpose, because I'm genuinely very grateful for the fact that all of the work and and non-work um, that I do are on these lands, which, you know, sovereignty mm-hmm. was never ceded. Indigenous Australians were probably the first scientists, right? So 
Mm-hmm. Um, so if there are any listeners who know more about this stuff than we do and can educate us, please contact us on socials or email us curiosityrat at gmail.com. Mm. We're science people. We like to learn. Let help yeah, us. Yeah. And us like, this is, it's interesting actually that we've spoken more about the indigenous stuff at the start of this episode than other ones, because it'll, it'll come up again later in the episode, less around okay. indigenous Australians, but indigenous populations and, uh, the Western treatment of them um comes mm. into this a little bit um not not super much i'm not going to spend too much time on it because once again i don't feel like it's my area of expertise to talk about and it's definitely not the focus of the science podcast but worth acknowledging always um but i kept saying you know <laughs> new year's resolutions end of the year this episode is in fact being released on new year's eve end of the year mm-hmm. um and it is going to be our last episode of this season we're going to take a couple of months of break um, between this episode and the next one. The next season um, before we start we, up again next year. Yeah, as we tend to do at the end of uh, each year. So, yeah. Oh, we're doing a little bit of a treat this time. Normally our, our season finale is the Halloween episode, but we're, uh, we're yeah, being cheeky. I know, and doing I know. We're New splicing a, an extra one in um, because <laughs> for a couple of reasons, like this one, this topic, um, as like everyone's already seen the title of it. I'm talking about MDMA and psilocybin. Um, and if you have no idea what those are, we'll, we'll get into it in a second. But I'm particularly excited about this one for two reasons. Number one, this is very relevant to my area of research. So like, you know, we said at the start, I'm the scientist here. Um, and I am doing my PhD in um, addiction neuroscience. And I am looking at different you know, possible treatments for um, alcohol addiction, alcohol use disorder. And one of those possible treatments um, is MDMA or MDMA-assisted therapy for the treatment of um, alcohol use disorder. So this is kind of an area that I am relatively, hopefully, uh, familiar with. And I've recently (laughs) just, you know, learned all of this like history and stuff that I'm going to tell you about today. And I'm very excited. So I'm excited to talk about it for that reason, because I know a lot and it's exciting. Um, but also because, you know, end of 2023, looking back on the year, I mean, look, there's been lots of big things happening science wise, but the one, once again, most relevant, I think to, to me and my research, the biggest sort of thing to come out of 2023 as an MDMA researcher in Australia is that Australia has just this year, um, re rescheduled, which essentially just means reclassified. I'll explain a bit more Mm -hmm. in a bit. Um, and made and legalized, essentially, both MDMA and psilocybin. Um, And Australia is, like, this is the first time this has happened in the world. Like, the first time a government has, like, rescheduled a drug from being recreational to medicinal um, when it was previously, like, just recreational. Um, And so Australia is, like, world-leading, which is, I don't know, feels uncharacteristic for Australia. Um, And it's, like, mostly exciting, but a little bit, like, "Mm." Um, and I'll, you know, I'll get into all of that. But, yeah, that happened literally this year um, from July 1st, 2023. So that's, yeah, finish off the year reflecting on just these two drugs. And I think that, honestly, like, in the, you know, story, overall kind of narrative of, of medicine, like, there's nothing, like, there aren't many stories that are as exciting, it's just as interesting to me as the journey um, that psilocybin and MDMA have taken. So I keep saying yeah. these words and you're like, what the fuck are you talking about, Caden? Like, <laughs> come on. Um, so mm-hmm. if, you, if you weren't aware, psilocybin is, um, if you've heard of magic mushrooms, perhaps, 
um, is a is a drug that you're more familiar with. And so the psychoactive compound, the street thing, name, if you will. Well, no, like the the mushrooms, like they are mushrooms. I mean, we now make yeah. synthetic psilocybin, um, oh, really? but yeah, and I'll explain um, in a bit. Okay. Like, but yeah, it, they were first found in mushrooms, and then it was isolated. Anyway, I'll, I'll tell you this whole. I'll tell you this whole story. But essentially, <laughs> magic mushrooms, psilocybin. When you hear psilocybin, we're talking about the thing in magic mushrooms that makes has it makes it have that hallucinatory effect. effect. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then MDMA. If you don't know what that is, maybe you've heard of ecstasy, maybe you've heard of Molly, maybe you've heard of, um, I don't know, those are the two street names. Hingers. Hingers. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, so MDMA is essentially the psychoactive component of the party drug, ecstasy, right? So, What does MDMA stand for? So MDMA stands for, mm-hmm. I feel like you asked this on purpose, Matt. You know what this stands for. Uh, it stands for methylene dioxide. I know at least two of the letters. All right. The last two? Methamphetamine. Yeah, methylene dioxide, methamphetamine. <laughs> yeah, which like, boom, got him. MDMA must be evil because meth, like methamphetamine, which, you know, we call just mm. meth on the street, right? We call meth on the street, I say. As the <laughs> we, the, For, the royal we. No, yes, yes. Um, so. But I mean, like, yeah, when I first learned that, I was taken aback because I just assumed that, you know, when I think meth, I obviously have the associations with, you know, we're, we're talking about mm. like ice, you yeah, know, which shard, like fucking yeah. smoke it through a fucking crack pipe, and then and MDMA. Like, you know, it's like ecstasy. That's a party drug. You pop a pill, you go out. That's not meth. Um, it's different. But then also, like, there have been a lot of you know, this has been latched onto in a lot of the like you know campaigns around like MDMA is dangerous and unsafe and bad, um, and it has been lumped in with dangerous drugs like meth. Be kind of you know not just because of this, but you know it's it's a very big misconception. Like it is, it is only you know I'm here being like, oh, we've just made Australia has just legalized MDMA. We're never we're not going to do that for methamphetamine. Like it's not the same. Um, and I'm going to spend this podcast pretty much telling you that like MDMA like is safe. Like we've shown it to be safe. Um, so like it's totally yeah, it totally makes sense that people are going to latch onto that. And so I want to be very very clear that this. The reason the words methamphetamine are in, well, the two words, sorry, the prefix meth and the word amphetamine Mm -hmm. are in both of these drugs is because of the way that we name things in chemistry, just like naming conventions. So like, yeah, methanol, ethanol, just describe two compounds that are similar, but different in a way that we just swap that prefix. So amphetamine is the class of drug, right? So both MDMA and um, methamphetamine fall into this class of amphetamines. So does Dexies, Dexamphetamine. Right, yeah. For ADHD. Is that similar to like um, opioids are a class of drug? Mm-hmm. So in which you've got, you know, morphine, codeine, heroin, yeah. fentanyl yeah. are all totally. opioids, exactly. but vastly different in yep. how they affect a person. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so methylene dioxide, the MD part of MDMA is really important because that means that it's got something called a methylene dioxide group. Um, which mm-hmm. is like pretty much like a ring that attaches, you know, if we can all picture a, you know, standard chemical structure with like a ring and a tail, chuck an extra like ring on there is your methylene dioxy group, sort of not mm-hmm. a benzene ring. Anyone who's like a chemist listening to this de- like description, this is, you know, don't take me too <laughs> seriously in terms of the specifics of what I'm saying, but it's this extra group, the methylene dioxy, um, group that's attached 
onto it and methamphetamine, like meth, the drug, lacks this. And this change, like it completely changes how the compound interacts with the brain. Like they do not Mm. do the same thing in the brain. MDMA does a whole lot of stuff with like serotonin and works probably predominantly via serotonin, does a bit of dopamine stuff. Whereas like methamphetamine, meth is like, works on dopamine and it does a different thing to dopamine. Like they just, they're different. They're similar enough that they share that naming component, but in terms of Mm. like um, how they interact with the brain and the body and also the safety profiles, most importantly, are hugely different, hugely, hugely, hugely different. Um, And that is important. And that's, so I'm glad actually that, that we addressed that um, because that's going to be, important uh later (laughs) so um pretty much what we're gonna do is we're gonna we're gonna take a narrative like a a historical um dive you know um through the history of these compounds kind of through to now and it's um and talking about all the science that's kind of happened along the way um finishing with yeah 2023 end of 2023 baby here we are um and yeah i just i think it's fascinating that these drugs yeah, they. I mean, they started as therapeutic potentials, uh, which a lot of people, I think, don't realize before they became sort of recreational substances that then got outlawed mm. and now we're kind of reclaiming them as medical treatments. Really interested um, to dive into the history of this because starting out as therapeutic, then switching into something not therapeutic to be brought back, it, it makes me think of, you know, old stories of, you know, I don't know, fucking 1800s, early 1900s, where you could buy fucking cocaine and heroin over the mm. counter. Give this to your sick kid. That'll fix his cough right up. No more well, consumption yeah. for him. You know, um, and that's true. we've and got a history of a lot of old things. Uh, medical... Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas- I actually listened to a podcast recently about um, radium and how they used to put Ooh. radium in fucking everything. And they thought it was this great health tonic before yeah. they really started to realize the effects mm. on the human body. And mm. everyone's bones crumpled from the inside and they died horrible mm. deaths. And now, you know. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. Whereas, like, <laughs> interestingly, these both of these ones, as as you'll see, um, or I don't know, you may disagree, but as, as uh, it appears to me, kind of neither of them... Um, are misplaced bad historic decisions. They were things that were outlawed perhaps too quickly without enough exploration um, because of things like heroin and cocaine or whatever, psilocybin and MDMA Mm. I'm talking about here. Um, And then as a result, we're now coming back to research that was squashed too early. Um, Mm. So we're going to start with psilocybin um, because chronologically that just kind of makes sense to start at psilocybin. So psilocybin, or as I said, magic mushrooms, um, they have been used in spiritual and like religious practices for literally centuries, literally just like quite a long time. And then in the mid 1950s, American amateur mycologist Robert Gordon Wasson, um, Mm -hmm. and I say amateur mycologist because that's kind of what he gets referred to as uh, going forward because he, you know, he's he's credited with making Mm. the Western world and the Western audience essentially aware of psilocybin as as a thing. And he's a white dude who, yeah, Mm -hmm. kind of under this guise of- First white guy. Yeah. Under, under this guise of like, I'm a mycologist and I'm really interested in mm. mushrooms. And like, you know, he documented mushroom mushrooms around the world with his wife, kind of like just for fun. It was this the, point. uh, the first white guy to write it down. 
Yeah, but like the thing is, the, my point that I kind of, I got caught on mycologist because I just think it's so fucking funny that he now gets referred to as a mycologist because of this, like, you know, he went and did mm. mushies one time and wrote about it um, because he, like, at the point in time that he actually goes to Mexico and, like, this all happens, like, his actual job was as the vice president of an investment banking firm. Like, this is just a <laughs> He's fucking... He's a finance bro. Yeah, literally, finance this is a bro white went into finance the forest, bro. took some mushrooms, wrote about it, and now uh-huh. he's a mycologist. And so, but amateur mycologist. I know but a few yes. people like that, actually. Um, hmm. So, essentially, this is, this is where I'm, like, the indigenous stuff that we were talking about earlier kind of comes back, because I read a couple, I've read a bunch of different sources and there is conflicting reports. And, um, so I don't want to say with any certainty, but there are definitely some reports that there was some deceit involved in him becoming involved, like participating in this ceremony. So it's an indigenous population, the Mazatec people, um, in Mexico, and they have this Mm -hmm. ceremony that involves taking psilocybin mushrooms. Um, and where's this guy from? America, North America. Classic. Yeah. And so, I don't know, there were some reports that uh, this ceremony was designed to find a lost person and he lied saying that they'd lost, he'd lost his son or something. Um, but then there were other reports that said like, that's not true. He didn't lie in order to do that. But what, what was pretty much confirmed is that the, the woman of the Mazatec tribe, um, that gave him these mushrooms got like completely ousted by her tribe and like, Mm. you know, people were not happy with her for having done, like it had not good effects for her and her life. Um, so, you know, I have a lot of, yeah, we're kind of at a point now though, that, you know, this was a while ago and now all of these clinical trials and so forth are, are more or less using, um, synthetic psilocybin. Um, so the question of, yeah, was was this compound wrongfully taken from an indigenous population? And, you know, not sure. Once again, I'm going to try and not get too political or philosophical kind of throughout this because it's not my place, but I do think it is important to acknowledge that when I say psilocybin has been used for a very long time, it has been used by indigenous mm. populations that didn't necessarily give us the permission that we have taken um, ourselves to have in terms of taking this and, um, is psilocybin, that's, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Mm. is that not found in multiple varieties of mushrooms that grow natively all around the world? Or are there only some specific varietals of magic mushrooms where the active ingredient is psilocybin, i.e. this one in Mexico where we first discovered it and it's since then been propagated worldwide? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I feel like there have been, there, like, this was not the only place that had psychoactive psychedelic mushrooms. Because I know there are mushrooms that grow around the local forest yeah. where I live that are, mm. you know, oh, have totally. psilocybin in them, are magic um, mushrooms. So I guess are those native or they since been spread by white. I have that feeling that they're native. Um, yeah, no, and they probably are I- native, but that doesn't mean <laughs> that... And it also doesn't mean that people weren't taking them. Perhaps Indigenous Australians were also also had psychoactive rituals that we, you know, haven't heard about as much. Mm. Um, uncertain. But what is pretty damn clear is the pathway from these specific mushrooms and this specific guy to yeah. 
where we are today. So essentially what happened gotcha. is old mate, he went, he, he did this ritual where he took the mushrooms and then he described this experience. He wrote a photo essay where he didn't take the photos. Some other dude took the, someone else took the photos, but he wrote the words of this um, photo essay in 1957 called Seeking the Magic Mushroom, um, which was published in Life magazine. And yeah, it's essentially mm-hmm. credited with introducing psilocybin to a Western audience because That from might have been there, like the first time the phrase magic mushroom might have been Yeah, and he, well. look, I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of Robert Gordon Wasson, but he apparently didn't put the word magic mushroom. Like he didn't put the word magic there. It was like an editor in Life magazine that added the word magic. Right. And he was, he's kind of later come and said like he, that he didn't agree to that or he didn't want that or something mm. because then it was the use of the word magic mushroom that hype, you know, a journalist knew what they were doing. Yeah. But then essentially what happened based on the popularity and the like hype that was built around uh, this article, it caught the attention of a bunch of scientists who were studying psychoactive substances at the time, including Swiss chemist, Albert Hoffman. Now, I don't know. Does that name mean anything to you, Matt? Hoffman, Albert Hoffman. Um, it does not. But I did just make a little connection around the 50s. That would have been pretty similar time to LSD and stuff coming around, eh? So it's Hoffman the bing, LSD bing, bing. guy. Hoffman yeah. is indeed best known as the first person to synthesize and then experience um, the psychoactive effects of uh, LSD. Yep. So, you know, yeah, he originally, I think LSD, he synthesized it with the intention of creating like a, a respiratory drug, I think, or a circulatory drug or something. Um, and then it, he accidentally ingested a small amount of it or absorbed some through his skin or something mm. and experienced it, experienced is experienced the effects. Um, and then very famously, um, after accidentally doing that, went back the, you know, went back and was like, I'm going to do that again this time on purpose. Um, mm-hmm. Synthesized it, took it, took a huge amount, uh, cycled home from the lab and documented it all. Um, yeah. And, you know, went to advocate for, yeah, LSD throughout uh, most of his life in Korea. Anyway, Hoffman, old mate LSD, mm-hmm. um, Wasson sends him some psilocybe Mexicana, which is that very specific mushroom from that very specific part of Mexico that, yeah. you know, um, psilocybe Mexicana mushroom. Um, and from that, Hoffman was able to isolate psilocybin and determine its chemical structure and then artificially synthesize it. Nice. Um so, you know, right back in 1958 was when we first mm. got our synthetic uh psilocybin. Pretty much, like, right after we discovered it, more yeah, or less. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Because yeah. Right, off, right after white people discovered it. Um, because, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yes. No, you're right. This was, like, they obviously, they did this on purpose because even though uh, mushrooms, you can just take the mushroom and get the same effect and use it that way, having it synthetic allows you to be more kind of controlled and standardized mm. in your dosing, right? And for like research purposes. And yeah, it's like what we did with um, fucking aspirin, right? Originally derived mm. from the bark of a willow tree, if the Tim Minchin song is correct, but rather than just <laughs> eating bark off a tree, it's much easier to figure out what is the analgesic effect of this strip it down, mm. isolate it, synthesize it, and then mass produce it is much more beneficial yeah. from a well, medical standpoint. And, like, I think, you know, most most drugs, well, not most necessarily, but definitely a lot of the, like, psychoactive ones can be found in plants or come from plants. Um, mm. And that's where MDMA is different. Um, and can't be found in nature and wasn't first found in a plant. It is, like as far as we are currently aware, like only available in synthetic 
form. Um, I was I was is, thinking about this earlier when we were talking about MDMA, and I, I thought we might mm, come back to it. Like, what actually is it? Because when you think about yeah. the substance itself, those who who don't know, I, I think it's similar to like meth, where it comes in sort of a like a rock or a crystal kind of form. Which, yeah. Well, in the what I like use in my research, it's a powder. It's like a white okay. powder um, is the form that I use, the mm. MDMA that I use in my research, and we dissolve it in saline and then inject mm. it. Before I jump into MDMA, actually, it was just an interesting point that it is not found in a plant. I just want to duck mm. back to the psilocybin storyline for a second um, because Please. essentially, okay, so we're at 1958. Um, we've just synthesized psilocybin synthetically. Um, but then, you know... 1960s, the counterculture, psychedelic counterculture movement of the 1960s. Hippies, um, let's go. Yeah, there's there's a whole lot of political stuff that I'm not necessarily going to go into. Mm. There's a lot, if you want to know more about this, there is so much content by people who understand it better that can tell you about the sort of social political things that were going on and how psychedelics were involved in that. But psilocybin and LSD essentially are your two big ones here. And so then in 1970, um, this is all based sort of in the United States, um, the United States Controlled Substances Act um, was passed. And essentially what happened is that psilocybin, um, also LSD, but psilocybin is what we're focusing on here, was placed at what's called Schedule 1. So in the United States, um, specifically in the United States, yeah. Schedule 1 substances are those that are considered to have high abuse potential, no accepted medical use, and a lack of accepted safety for use under medical supervision. Um, so 1970 happens, psilocybin gets chucked in this schedule one category and it wasn't too long, um, following that, that other countries follow suit. And so Australia classified psilocybin as schedule nine. Now I point this out because our schedule nine is the same as America's schedule one. Do we just have so like what Australia, a one to nine scale? We just scale, do it do backwards reverse. because yeah, okay. fucking Wait. who knows why. So what happened in Australia this year is that psilocybin and MDMA went from being Schedule 9 down to Schedule 8. When okay. reclassification happens in America, if it happens, it's probably going to happen. I'll get to that, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, it'll go from like Schedule 1 to Schedule 2. They just move in. It's just silly. But right. essentially, Schedule 1 in the US came first. Australia then very quickly afterwards went, oh, Schedule 9, same thing. Same, but like, it's the same, it's the same yeah. thing of like high abuse potential, no accepted medical use and a lack of accepted safety for use. So other medical. schedule nine um, drugs, for example, would be like cocaine, heroin, yeah. methamphetamine. Yeah. Um, so from here, I'm going to jump across to MDMA because we haven't done any of the story of MDMA yet. And there's a reason that I'm, I'm starting this story now. It fits, it fits within the timeline, um, but not immediately. Okay. We're not starting at 1970. I want to just pull us back just a tiny bit real quick, to 1912, because... Oh, yeah, throwback. Yeah, crazy thing that, like, I didn't know until relatively recently, um, learning a lot about MDMA and its history. MDMA was actually, like, first synthesized in 1912. Um, but nobody figured out... 1912? Yeah. Fucking it was, And it was, like, patented um, by the German pharmaceutical company Merck. But the thing is, nobody figured it out that it was um, psychoactive, that you could get high from taking it until the mid-1970s, which is why I bring up MDMA now. But yeah, essentially, mm. it was first patented by this pharmaceutical company, um, but the original patent that was, like, including MDMA wasn't 
for MDMA. Like it wasn't the goal. It wasn't what they were trying to make. It was actually about making a substance called hydrostinine, um, which is to stop bleeding. It's like a blood clotting agent. Um, and MDMA was just like one of the intermediate chemicals in the like synthetic pathway. So there was this patent that was like, okay, we've, we've come up with this novel way to synthesize this, um, hydrostinine and, you know, here is, yeah, the patent and we're going to patent all the chemicals on this synthesis pathway and MDMA or mm-hmm. 3,4-methylene-dioxymethamphetamine um, was one of those chemicals. No one really cared about it. It, it was never made as, yeah. It wasn't its own thing. It yeah. was just, so you know, which is why it's like... MDMA wasn't made for this blood clotting purpose. It was made as a means to reach this other yes. chemical because yeah. from the amount of chemistry videos I watch, they have to do 700 yes. other fucking things in exactly. the process to isolate shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, which gotcha. is why it's like, you know, you sort of said before, you don't find MDMA in a plant or whatever. Like, we didn't isolate it from a plant because, yeah, it was just it was just an in-between mm. step. Or so we thought. I don't know. There's There's a... There's a moral here. There's like, you know, there's something symbolic (laughs) to take from this, um, not to be underestimated. But essentially, we're going to fast forward now to the mid-1970s again. So if you remember, LSD and psilocybin have just been, like, uh, made illegal. Um, They were banned. Mm -hmm. And so (sighs) there was a chemist, Alexander Shulgin, um, and he mm-hmm. was intrigued by the psychoactive properties of various compounds. And he was essentially, he just synthesized a bunch of chemicals and um, like took them himself uh, for shits and gigs to see what would happen. Um, and MDMA mm-hmm. was one of those. So he was the first person to sort of discover the psychoactive properties of MDMA because for some reason he decided to synthesize it. And it's... So interesting. So I only just recently learned about this book that I've started reading and I haven't read enough of it yet to like, but it might give me the answers to this because it's a book by Shulgin and it's called Mm -hmm. PKAL, which is like P-I-H-K-A-L. PKAL, A Chemical Love Story, and it stands for um, Mm -hmm. phenylethylamines. I have known and loved, which is the kind of class and drug, class of drug. Um, And essentially this book, it's arranged in two parts. And the first one is like a semi-fictionalized autobiography of Shulgin um, and his his wife, um, who was also quite involved in, in some of this stuff. And then the second half of the book is him literally describing 179 different psychedelic compounds, most of which he discovered himself, including detailed synthesis instructions, bioassays, dosages, <laughs> and other commentary. Um, so in, and you can just buy this book. It's, uh, it's available. It was, they tried to ban it, uh, for a bit and in different places. And then there's this whole stuff around like, um, you know, sense censoring knowledge and, and all sorts of stuff. But essentially mm. like in 1994, which was two years after this PCAL book was, uh, published the drug enforcement agency, mm-hmm. uh, essentially raided Shulgin's lab and requested he turn over his license and stuff. And, and and a lot of that is speculated to be due to him essentially, yeah, publishing a cookbook for illegal drugs. Um, and at this point that he released his book, the reclassification had already... Oh, yeah, yeah. So, sorry, yeah, I fast-forwarded so here to... Yeah, 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 1992 when the book came out, uh, which MDMA was in fact illegal, which, sorry, yes, I have jumped ahead. We're going right, back okay. to the mid-1970s where MDMA was not yeah. yet illegal. It wasn't 
it was it's and kind of in this legal synthesized it yes. and yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and this is where you know a lot of the stuff with MDMA started. It wasn't illegal during this time. Like that's what's important. Mm. It wasn't technically legal in the sense like you couldn't just like go anywhere and buy it. You had to either sort of synthesize it yourself or be connected to a chemist who knew how to synthesize it. And there were labs. It was just one of those things that was that so sort of, new. Yeah, it but it had been. it was not illegal. Yeah. Um, and so that's important. Like none of none of the stuff that yeah, yeah this early stuff was illegal. Um, so essentially in 1976, um, upon, yeah, experiencing MDMA's psychoactive effects, Shulgin, yeah, essentially he like was like, oh, oh shit, this, this could be really like therapeutic. Like this has potential to be therapeutic. Um, and he, mm. he shared it with a bunch of his uh, people in his circles, including a psychologist, uh, named Leo Zeff. Um, and so this psychologist was like, Oh yeah, like this this shit's gonna facilitate some like deep emotional insights. Like this this is good. Um and he mm. started using it in his practice, in his like psychology, like in his therapy, um reportedly with great safety and success, as much as these were like this is the thing you have to remember, like none of this is are, you know, clinical trials like the ones we're having today. None of these are you know, mm. a lot of this is anecdotal evidence in a sort of legal gray area where it's not illegal and these guys aren't doing anything illegal or wrong, but they're also not, yeah. like, it's controversial still. Um, and it's very sort of yeah. underground, like, it's not hugely known about. Um, and essentially what I thought thought was really, really... We'll call it fringe science. Yeah, sort of. Um, and... Well, fringe, like, it wasn't even science. Like, science to me is research and trying to understand. These people were just like, mm. oh, I have a I have a hunch that this might help some people, and they were just using it in clinical practice. Like, fringe medicine almost. Right, okay. Yeah. So they were, like, they were prescribing well, it, like, yeah. even though it was experimental mm. and it well, had it wasn't, undergone these yes. yeah. trials. And it yeah. wasn't, like, a prescription of, like, here, take your drug, which, you know, I'll kind of get to is an important part mm. of, of these drugs now and today and how they're becoming legal now and today. But it's not just a case of, mm. like, take this drug and go take it by yourself and run off and have fun with it. It's a, like... Yeah. Sit here in this therapy room with me and have a guided therapy session mm. and I'm administering... Do like, you're going to have together. this drug... Um, yeah, well, you say trip together in some of the early, you know, yeah, it's psilocybin and, uh, mm. MDMA stuff. There are reports of like the therapist doing it as well. Um, but that's not the but case then today. Acting, it's and like a trip sitter. Yeah. Rather in, than... in these cases and stuff, it's, yeah, the therapist is not on the drug. It's just the, the patient that is being, you know, taken through this process. So essentially, yeah, in the early, what I thought was really interesting in the early 1980s, when this sort of you know, therapy stuff was happening. Mm. Um, MDMA was referred to as, first of all, as Adam was one of the things like A D A M because that's just MDMA mm. rearranged the letters Adam. Um, oh, but cute. the one that I thought was cuter or better was, um, empathy. They actually called this drug empathy. <laughs> um, oh, that's cute because yeah, there were a whole bunch of these psychotherapists that were sort of using it and aiming to sort of reserve its use for these clinical and research purposes. Um, but unfortunately... That's really interesting. Like, when you look at one of its street names today, ecstasy. Well, that's what like, I was just about to say. Thing, right? No, literally. It, oh, hell that's yeah. what happened is um, it was a, like, a club owner in Texas um, kind of got 
a hold mm. of or heard heard whiff of you know this this empathy thing rebranded it as mm. ecstasy marketed it as ecstasy because ah. it was you know once again in this legal gray area where it wasn't illegal so it was like better for these club people to be trying to get ecstasy to circulate their clubs instead of like something that was already scheduled. You don't go one. to a club for um, empathy. You go to a club for ecstasy. Yeah, exactly. It's a marketing it's, thing. It's all just... I, I, it's, it's like magic mushrooms all over exactly. again. They've totally. taken the original name, yeah. some marketing And then recreational use put a spin has on it and um, flourished. Exactly. And so then... It's the power of branding. Yeah. What happened is that in 1984, the US Drug Enforcement Administration, so the DEA, Ooh. what happened is they they noted an increase in MDMA confiscations. Um, so essentially they were doing a bunch of like drug busts and raids and shit, and they were seizing all these actual mm. legal things, but they were noticing that in increasing amounts, they were seizing like MDMA. They were finding this MDMA stuff in mm. amongst all these actual legal drugs. And they were like, oh shit, that's proof it should also probably be illegal, hey? Like, like yeah, look at all this illegal yeah. bad stuff that we know is illegal and bad. And look at this brand new... And this new... is being found with it. Yeah. Um, and because Whatever it's... these kids are on these days, it can't mm. be good. And because, so, because in America, there's the Drug Enforcement Administration and then the FDA, which is the Food and Drug Association. And one's kind of the legal drugs and one's kind of like um, like medications. And I don't know, it's, it's an interesting, weird system, but essentially it was the DEA that pushed it for this reason. So the reason it was then moved and essentially in... Yeah, in 1985, MDMA was categorized as a U.S. Schedule One, and then Australian Schedule Nine mm. in 1986. A year later, it's um, almost like because being out on a night out, and you just happen to be around a fight that breaks out, and you accidentally get lumped in with all of the arrests that happened because you were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm. That's what happened to poor old MDMA. Uh, I mean, yeah, this is a hugely sort of simplified part of the like you know story as well, and there's a whole lot of other. Um, you know, social and political speculations around, you know, motivations to make it illegal or, you know, because essentially the clinical research community kind of, they sought to contest this. There was a hearing, um, mm. but then given the lack of structural clinical trial data, like I kind of tried to emphasize that there, these weren't yeah. structured clinical trials, um, there was enough grounds for the people who were trying to make it illegal to be like, yeah, nah, doesn't matter. We're going to make it illegal, even though there is no safety problems that science has suggested, um, which is, yeah. So that's, that's another really mm. interesting, uh, thing that I, I, I think is actually, uh, now is the time to bring it up in that, um, in terms of, yeah, safety profiles and, you know, because if you remember the the criteria that I said for a Schedule 9 slash Schedule 1 drug. So one of those things was like a lack of accepted medical use. Um, but then another one was around safety. Um, and I don't know about you, but I feel like definitely for me growing up, there was a lot of like anti-ecstasy uh, messaging around like, oh, definitely. don't do ecstasy because like it, you might die. It's like the worst. I mean, just look at Summer Heights High. That was the biggest anti-ecstasy PSA that mm. play Mr. What's-His-Face put on. Mm. Um, um, and that, I think... That, that, honestly, that's the probably like the only exposure I think I had um, outside of something coming on the news being like ecstasy bad, ice bad. You know, oh, I remember like together, in high school... Which we that talked being a about thing in... separate, but like... We were... Yeah, well... Okay, hold on to your fucking hat because this, look, 
Mm. There's a whole lot of, yeah, like I said, sort of politically driven speculations I could make around mm. uh, the reasons for sort of the, you know, yeah, the reason the 1990s and early 2000s were sort of like marked by this clash between clinical advocates and, yeah, this media sort of narrative pushing this ban um, to curb recreational use. Um, and I'm just, I don't feel qualified to talk about a lot of the political speculations, but what I am qualified to talk about is the scientific method. And so I want to talk mm. about a scandal because I, I, this, you know, yeah. So there was that whole sort of media push and I definitely got shown books and stuff and told like ecstasy bad. Um, but even within science, like even me as a researcher now kind of writing about MDMA and reading about MDMA, there's a lot of stuff around MDMA being, neurotoxic potentially and like look at high doses yes and it is a thing that we do need to consider when picking doses for mice rats humans or whatever is like different you know a high enough dose of this stuff is going to be neurotoxic but in 2002 September 2002 there was a study that was published um titled severe dopaminergic neurotoxicity in primates after a common recreational dose regimen of MDMA ecstasy um, and so this was published in the journal Science, which like kind of behind Nature, uh, Science is like the other big fucking journal that is like respectable and, you know, a big deal. Um, and so this study, essentially it found that in non-human primates, so monkeys, that were given MDMA um, and given MDMA at the dose that is like a human recreational dose or a human sort of therapeutic dose, okay. which are similar, um, it found that there was severe brain dopaminergic neurotoxicity. So what that means is your dopamine neurons, a whole bunch of them died, like a whole bunch of them dead. Mm. Like there was a whole lot of like, yeah, kind of brain damage, quote unquote, specifically to the dopamine system um, that was found. And this was something yep. that had not been demonstrated before and was like quite concerning. In fact, like 40% of the animals in the study like either died or were so close to death that they had to be withdrawn from the study. Um, right. And yeah, so... This is kind of like, you know, never been demonstrated before, quite concerning why. And it like this this led researchers to actually, like other researchers, um, to actually questioning the legitimacy of the study. In fact, I found one quote um, in an editorial that was, you know, yeah, whenever one thinks, or sorry, whatever one thinks of the toxicity of, ecstas of ecstasy, 40% of young people using it every weekend are not dying. Um which is a good yeah. point. Like at this point as well, that this came out early 2000s, like even though MDMA was illegal, like it was still rampant in like the rave and club sort of scene, right? But not like 40% yeah. of people weren't dying, right? Especially like what sort of era are we talking about this study came out? 2002. 2002, yeah. Like early 2000s, yeah. late 90s, that kind of underground rave club mm. scene, the start of like EDM really taking off, taking mm. off. That was that was huge around that time. Like that's a yeah. big cultural part of the late mm. 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, totally. And bringing so some music history for context yeah. into it, I guess. Um, yeah, the other researchers were like, this doesn't make sense because, like, yes, we're seeing some deaths of young people, but, like, the other thing that I will just kind of mention mm. now is that, you know, really all of the slash a lot of the issues with, like, MDMA or ecstasy, um, if you buy it recreationally, is if it's cut with something that's mm. not actually MDMA and you don't know. Like, there's a lot of fentanyl, mm. um, for example, especially in the U.S., kind of circulating through MDMA um, and, like, 
actually bad shit that's cut with it. And that is where the issue comes from. It's not from the sort of pure MDMA itself. But this paper is trying to argue that yeah. pure MDMA itself was causing like 40% of animals to like be this fucked up because of death in their dopamine neurons. Um, and so, yeah, there was kind of a lot of questioning around this. And then in June 2003, the authors actually like, they published an article standing by their findings, like digging their heels in. Um, but mm. then in September 2003, I'm just going to read you an actual quote because this... I just, anyway, so they had to publish a retraction. Um, and so they published uh. this thing saying, we write to retract our report, severe dopaminergic neurotoxicity in primates after a common recreational dose regimen of MDMA, um, following our recent discovery that the drug used to treat all but one animal in that report came from a bottle that contained methamphetamine instead of the intended drug <laughs> MDMA. Ah, so they just gave the monkeys a bunch of they meth. They gave all them. but one of them meth. Um, I, I want to, I would like out. to continue. Um, upon investigation of our laboratory records, we determined that mm -hmm. the studies detailed in our paper um, utilised a batch of MDMA that had been requested on the same date as a batch of methamphetamine and that both drug requests were for the same amount, 10 grams, and were processed by the supplier on the mm -hmm. same day. Both drugs were delivered to our laboratory on the same day in the same package. At delivery, the two bottles had different affixed labels, the same delivery reference number but different batch numbers as specified in the blah, 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 following the receipts, blah, blah, blah. We began to suspect that the two bottles of the drug might have borne incorrectly. Essentially, they're blaming mislabeled meth and MDMA. And they're just like, lol, sorry, right. we dug our heels in. We've made this whole, like, um, and essentially they were like, oh, we, but, oh, both bottles were we empty. We made an admin error. So we couldn't double check this. But then when we got poked and prodded even further, they sent the frozen brains of two of the animals from the treatment that had mm -hmm. died um, shortly after the drug mm -hmm. treatment. Um, when, this is a quote, when these brains were analysed um, by three independent laboratories, they were found to contain uh, methamphetamine and its metabolite amphetamine, neither of which is a metabolite of MDMA. Not even trace amounts of MDMA mm -hmm. or its metabolite MDMA, MDA were found in these brains. Um, so like, I thought the whole thing with science was like peer review was yeah. part of this. And this How is could science, they publish it like without literally that peer the review journal science. No, this got peer reviewed. It got missed in peer huh. review, and like, it's it's absolutely insane. And there's been a there was like a lot of kind of after that came out being like, how the fuck was this missed? This is not the sort of thing that should be mm. missed. Um, and yeah. like, there were several sort of accusations as well around like, you know, this lab rushing the results into print because the legislation, there was a bunch of legislation essentially designed to curb ecstasy use that was before US Congress at the time. So a little sus timing trying to push this study that was like, oh, MDMA kills your brain. Um, but the authors of course yeah. were like, that accusation is ludicrous. And the lab just made a simple human error. I'm like, mm. but then I also, um, sorry, this is now just like gossip about, but this is so interesting because I then oh, found a quote from a neuropharmacologist um, that was made later that says, it's another example of a certain breed of scientist who appear to do research on illegal drugs mainly to show what the government wants them to show. They extract large amounts of grant uh. money from the government to do this sort of biased work. And I was like, okay, yeah, but then... <laughs> 
Then I looked a little further into this particular scientist, and it turns out that he was Mm -hmm. accused and found guilty of plagiarism in 2010 for a book that he wrote. So take all of this with a grain of salt and remember that scientists are human, I guess, is my, like, uh, you know, Mm. moral of all of this story is that science like science and scientists and the way like things published in journals and all of this you know it's we're told to communicate in a way like scientific language is so hard to read because it's written in this very like objective passive voice Mm. to try and like give the illusion that this science is not being done by flawed human beings but like all of this science is being done by flawed human beings yeah because it makes it seem more legit but i'm like that feels inaccurate and disingenuous to me uh especially when mm. i read shit like, like this where i'm whole... like what the f-? like the fact that the yeah the idea of this neurotoxicity is like hung around so strongly i wonder with um because i remember from science you always had to list all of your error sources down whether there was like possible parallax error or this error whatever error and you do a plus or minus value at the end of your results accounting for said errors do we need to include a human bias error in our scientific papers be like i'm researching this stuff about drugs but also i'm getting paid by this well i mean we there is who just happens to be doing this i mean you do do your like funding disclosures and um um, like conflict of interest statements and all that sort of stuff. Like we, okay. they have tried to do that, but in a way that just, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what, I think the important thing is to just remember that all of this is potentially flawed. Right. And that like, you know, mm. I don't know. It's this idea. I think that I think we talk about a lot on this podcast of like the misconception that science equals facts when science actually yes. means uh, the yeah, whatever we think is most true at any given time based on the collection of information that we have and being open to that, in fact, being, like, keen for that to grow and change as we gain more evidence. Like, science is the opposite yes. of stone-cold hard fact. Science is the growth and development of knowledge. Um, and I think, like, yes. on top of that, science is... a very good is, way of putting it. Yeah. Um, and so I think, similarly, it's just keeping the idea in our minds that these studies are not cold, hard fact. They are also potentially flawed because they are just done by humans interpreting things with the best tools that we have at any given mm. uh, time. But yeah. As- and now we're, we're new scientists. We're a new generation where young bloods were standing on the shoulders of those giants that came before and all of their knowledge. And we're bringing new knowledge to the table mm. to be like, hey, what's up? This is what science says now. Exactly. So with that, I'm going to launch us back into the back into the narrative um, and take us out of the gross early 2000s of uh, disinformation, misinformation and weird studies. But like, I will say like, you know, despite these legal barriers. So essentially, you know, when, when these substances were made illegal, it became very, very hard to do clinical research um, into them essentially, right? Um, For a bunch of reasons, you know, funding was harder to get. There was a whole lot more paperwork around, like you had to get licenses to hold these drugs. Like it just, you know, it didn't make it impossible, but it made it like far less tempting. And when science is already like, oh, I need to make an argument to someone who's going to give me a grant that this is the most worth doing research, there was, you know, Mm. suddenly this became very hard out of reach Inaccessible. Yes, that's the word I'm looking for. But I will say, Mm. despite that, and despite all these legal barriers and stuff, there were a handful of, like, researchers and clinicians that, like, 
swore by this stuff uh, and continued to advocate for the potential of both MDMA and psilocybin in clinical settings. Um, and there was a sort of bunch of research looking kind of more generally at like, you know, MDMA and its ability to change how people's, you know, perceive faces or react in social situations, not necessarily from a clinical perspective, but with knowledge that can maybe be applied to a clinical scenario. But it was really, it was in 2011 where we kind of have pulled ourselves out of this gross couple decades. Um, and the first pilot clinical studies for both psilocybin and MDMA, separate studies, um, were mm. published. Um, and this is also the first clinical studies for it's not just psilocybin as a drug or MDMA as a drug. Um, it specifically was psilocybin-assisted therapy and MDMA-assisted mm. therapy, um, yeah. which I will just, you know, point out that, like, this is the thing that makes these different to, like, pretty much, like, every conventional pharmacotherapeutic approach that we have today. Like, this concept of yeah. drug-assisted psychotherapy is going to revolutionize mental health care. Like, big statement, but, like, you know, it's it's <laughs> yeah. just a very, very different way of doing things because, like, you know, we did an episode on um, antidepressants and sort of traditional antidepressants, which, you know, these drugs... Like traditional antidepressants, for example, you you take them daily, um, you take them indefinitely, um, and you take them mm -hmm. unsupervised, right? Yeah. None of those are true. Sort of like homework. Yeah. Um, but also just homework forever, every day for the rest yeah. of your life <laughs> or until you have remission sort of thing, but it's like indefinitely, right? Um, yeah. Whereas MDMA and psilocybin are not like that. They mm. are taken once, maybe twice, maybe three times. And so the way these things work is that you'll go or someone will undergo a block of like several weeks of regular therapy, right? Regular psychotherapy, talk therapy. Mm -hmm. And one, two or three of those sessions, depending on the different study or protocol or whatever, um, spaced out as well, not even consecutive sessions. Like you might have a mm -hmm. couple of weeks of normal therapy because you want to, you know, you want to get to know your therapist first. You don't want to be doing this with someone you've never met before. So they get a couple of weeks of like lead in therapy. Then they get one session where they're, um, essentially they're high on either psilocybin or MDMA during the yeah. session. And then they'll have a couple more sessions after that. And if that's just the one session, that's great. Or if it's a protocol with two or three, they'll have a couple of in-between sessions. They'll do another high session, a couple of in-between the integration sessions, another high one, and then a close-off thing. So it's like spaced out. So it's not daily. It's only a couple of times. Um, it's not indefinitely. It's just for this very standard sort of block of therapy. And it's not unsupervised. The whole time that you're high, you've mm. got someone hanging out who is a medical professional, at least one, if not more uh, people, yeah, around you. So these are, it's, it's, it's very, very different. And unlike traditional sort of antidepressants that can take like, you know, up to six weeks to start working, like this starts working straight away. Um, and the effects are kind of pretty long lasting. Um, but It's almost like more comparable to... Um surgery yeah you go in once you mm. get this procedure done and then you go away from totally. having the ailment fixed yeah. maybe go back every now and then but it's not like mm. you're getting ongoing surgery for yeah. an issue like you it's, do with other pharmaceutical treatments except it's also i would point out that it's also integrated with therapy because i think in that sense it's more comparable to yeah. things like tms or ect which are you know transmagnetic stimulation or um electroconvulsive therapy which are used 
today, like for treatment resistant depression and stuff, which are the sort of thing mm. that you get a couple of sessions of those and it has a more lasting effect. Um, however, yeah. the distinction here is that we also have therapy and it's like the talk therapy and it's the sort of therapy that like you would already do for things like PTSD and depression, which is what these drugs have been approved for specifically, which I'll, um, get into in a second, but yeah, it's the sort of therapy that you already do for these things, but then we're just adding, we're just making essentially in this large block of several weeks of therapy, one to three of those sessions, you're also going to be high on this drug and it makes the therapy mm. just like much more effective than it was by itself. Yeah. Like it just facilitates like even outside the therapy. Of the, um, me not knowing what it actually does to the brain in terms of like physical connections, whatever mm. shit like that, that goes on during the therapy. Even if I think of it as like a, me being a stereotypical man who does, who struggles to be open and talk about these mm. sorts of issues for myself if I've had a few drinks one night and my inhibitions are lowered, I'm probably more likely to just pour my heart out to someone. Mm. So I'm just imagining as like having a couple of drinks before going to therapy, which we do not condone. Making you more, which we do not condone. But if, in terms of an analogy, yeah, like but that alone being on a substance while in therapy might make you more open to. Yeah, and I mean actually. This is the big, the big question um, that, you know, essentially my research is trying to figure out is, is mechanisms, right? And there's a lot of sort of theories and there's a lot of, um, you know, questions in the sense that like both MDMA and psilocybin like act differently and feel different, but both sort of facilitate similar, like work in a similar way in that they um, both enhance the effects of psychotherapy by providing like emotional openness and this like altered state of consciousness consciousness that can like mm. lead to these insights and emotional like breakthroughs or whatever. And like the big question is like, yeah, is MDMA just working because we know that MDMA is what's called an empathogen. And like, unlike, you know, it doesn't just work via dopamine, like methamphetamine, it works hugely around serotonin. Um, and it also can release feeling, sorry, release hormones like oxytocin, which you might recognize as like the cuddle hormone, you know? Um, and it's like mm. this empathogen. So it's like, are you just vibe? Are you just bonding with your therapist more, vibing with them more? And so you're more able to be open with them. Is it working via like, you know, there's studies showing that people on MDMA are less likely to interpret like negative facial expressions as bad, which means, you know, are you maybe less likely to see your, ju your therapist as being judgmental, therefore more likely to talk about um, whatever it is that you feel a lot of shame about that, you know, you get healing from talking about, is it, you know, that sort of thing or, but if that was just the case and it was just a person person thing, then why is it that in rats, I can sort of MDMA can still maybe facilitate fear learning just from an exposure therapy. There's obviously some sort of way that MDMA is affecting the ability to learn and remember that is completely separate from humans talking to humans. Mm. But this is why, this is what we're still trying to untangle. And then psilocybin is completely different. It's not an empathogen. So it's working via a different mechanism somehow, right? And what we still don't know is, are the like hallucinogen effects actually necessary for psilocybin to be therapeutic? Because there's some actually animal research where they've figured out that like, uh, like psilocybin works via lots of different things, but binding to specifically the serotonin 2A receptor is what underlies the psychedelic altered perception effects. And they, they mm. essentially were able to block that 
and give them psilocybin. So psilocybin was still doing all the other things that psilocybin did. This was in animals, though, not in humans, because you can't do these things as specifically. Um, But essentially, yeah, they blocked the serotonin 2A, and they still saw some evidence of therapeutic effect. So it's like, is there a future where we can design drugs that hit everything else and you don't have to go through the trip if that's not, you know, or is the trip part Mm. of it? Um, People talk about psilocybin creating this, what's called ego dissolution, which is where you kind of lose a sense of self um, and that can potentially be part of why psilocybin is therapeutic for things like depression, because it helps give you context or it helps, you know, view your problems from a different, more detached, objective, objective perspective yeah, that yeah. rhymes. Um, is it, you know, people I talk about. we've seen similar things. I was gonna we've say- seen similar things happen with like, um, cannabis, right? Where you've got medicinal cannabis but then you can get medicinal just like cbd oil which doesn't contain all of the psychoactive effects but yeah 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 some therapeutic things derived from the totally like yeah cannabis is a good example of that where there are a whole bunch of different cannabinoids which people are figuring out the specificity that you can use different things for and like is there a potential like Mm. drugs like psilocybin and mdma even like we don't know yet if there is a potential to develop things that are just parts of it that still get the therapeutic, like we don't know. And the other thing I'll just say around potential mechanisms of psilocybin, um, while I'm on Mm. the mechanisms thing, is this idea of like neuroplasticity um, and essentially making the brain more Play-Doh, more malleable, kind of like, you know, that Mm. sort of thing. And there's a lot of, yeah, which is kind of what it it, it does in a way. It, It makes it, you know, more connected, more, there's evidence of like, I think it's really funny. It's it's they're called dendritic spines. So if you think of a neuron or think of like a brain cell, right? Mm. You've got the body of the cell, which is like the the circle bit that has all the like DNA and organelles or whatever. But then it's got the long spindly legs, right? Those are your dendrites. Yeah. And then on the dendrites, you have these little things um, that are called dendritic spines, which is a really poor name for them because they look like little mushroom caps that grow out. And I just think it's very funny because taking (laughs) psilocybin increases dendritic spines. Lots of things increase dendritic spine. It's not a mushroom specific thing, but I just also love that mushrooms increase mushrooms on your brain cells. Um, watch Joe Rogan have a field day with that. Oh no. Uh, what have I done? Uh, (laughs) but like essentially what it means is that they have more connectivity and stuff. And so, you know, there's a little bit of increased neurogenesis that is like birth of new brain cells, but like, that's not what's going to be driving this. But yeah, there's, there's a whole lot of like, or just maybe resetting different networks of system. The point is, mechanistically, psilocybin and MDMA are doing very different things in the brain. Um, yeah. And both are very, very different to just like having a couple of beers before going to talk to your therapist, which like maybe if you yeah. have a lot of like anxiety around confessing one particular thing that you haven't been able to tell anyone and it will be like a big thing for you to tell your therapist that, mm. then sure, a little bit of loss of inhibitions acutely from alcohol might facilitate that but like in every other way having alcohol before a session a therapy session like you're going to remember the session less you're going to be less likely to make conclusions and make these critical thought leaps and stuff that these drugs facilitate like it's you know there is both the feeling more comfortable with the person that you're having therapy with but there is an underlying way and because you also have to remember this is not just like a one-hour therapy session like you're, you're high for like eight hours on these things. Like this is like an eight yeah. hour sesh with your therapist. Like these are long haul things. And like, you know, jumping back to MDMA for a second, 
um, I kind of mentioned it works via both sort of serotonin, but there's also, there is also a dopamine effect because it, it is an amphetamine and amphetamines work via dopamine. And so that's why like MDMA is almost this really unique drug that you end up with this sense of motivation and energy as well as the like empathy, emotional closeness and euphoria. And it's almost like, like, it's quite likely that it's the dopamine effect that's creating this motivation. Cause we know, you know, um, that I've, I've, Pretty sure I've talked about this before on the podcast, but a lot of people think oh, around dopamine as being the liking thing, but dopamine is the wanting thing. Mm. Dopamine is, you get more dopamine when you want something. You get more like opioids when you like something. It's it, it, pleasure and motivation are distinct in that way. And so, yeah, mm. MDMA kind of, so look, in, in summary, there's also a lot of yeah, cool research going on, including the research that I'm doing, trying to figure out these mechanisms, but like, we don't really know yet. Um, so what we know is that psilocybin and MDMA mechanistically do very different mm, things in the brain. Yes. However, despite them being different, we've seen them to have similar effects that could yield yes. therapeutic results for both. Mm, but yes, not but then also the same thing. Yeah, so that's that's a good point that I will I haven't made clear yet, which is that these mm. things are currently they've been rescheduled, but also they have been approved by the TGA, which is Australia's Therapeutic Goods Association, um, for very specific mm-hmm. things. Psilocybin assisted therapy has been approved for the treatment of treatment resistant depression. And MDMA-assisted therapy has been approved for the treatment of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. That's it for now. That's it. That's all it is approved for. Nothing else. No. And I will quickly kind of go through all the clinical trials that are happening um, in a second. I'll take us back to 2011 and and launch through Mm. the different stuff that's going on and how it's kind of converging in a way almost. But I reckon, like, they're doing it via sort of different mechanisms and it's it's changing our way which i think is long overdue honestly um but it's changing the way that we look at these different psychiatric disorders in the sense that like you know i think i said in the antidepressant episode that like depression is not just a homogenous thing like it's it's lots of sort of different things and it seems that you know psilocybin assisted therapy facilitates a certain type of like, you know, maybe if you're looking for like a low, something that comes from like a low mood or something that, you know, the type of therapy where Mm. ego dissolution or whatever, and being able to look at your problem separately might be what is the crux to helping you the most. Whereas like MDMA, the empathy thing might come into it hugely or in just even the non-judgmentalness of the therapist, like the trust, you need to trust your therapist. Like if you are traumatized, if you have post-traumatic stress disorder, Mm. you do not like trust the world to keep you safe anymore. And so a drug that makes you feel safe with the person that you are unpacking your trauma with, of course that's going to help facilitate it. And it's really interesting um, just to see the way that, yeah, the things that we're picking these drugs for and being like, of course that makes perfect sense. But then as a result, the amount of overlap that's happening and the amount that we're kind of forced to just be like, okay, this person with depression is actually probably more similar to, you know, this person with anorexia than this person with anorexia is to the other anorexic Mm. person because of just the reasons for developing them. And same with a lot of substance use disorders, which is, that's my research. I'm in substance use disorders and I'm looking at drugs to treat other drug addictions. But the reason I'm looking at MDMA for, you know, and I'll, I'll talk about it, but 
for alcohol use disorder is because there is a huge overlap between people with PTSD and alcohol use disorder using alcohol yeah. to self-medicate the anxiety, the anxious symptoms that come from post-traumatic stress disorder. And because in the short term, alcohol will make you less anxious, but you use alcohol regularly and it makes you overall more anxious. So you end up in this vicious cycle where mm -hmm. you're like, you drink to get rid of the PTSD and it works at first, but then the PTSD gets, PTSD gets worse. So you drink more. So then it gets worse. So then you drink more and you're in this yeah. cycle where both things end up harder to treat. Um, so it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's, it's changing the so, way that we look yeah. at these different disorders, but the way that we're, you know. So it's good because even though it's only been approved for these two individual specific things, depression and PTSD, both of those things can be seen as a root cause for a lot of other issues and disorders, such as eating disorders, such mm. as alcohol abuse disorder. So you could have people who are struggling with those things like alcohol and whatever, but then they mm. can get treated for PTSD or for depression with these other mm. things. And that might show a carry on effect yeah. to their other and that's, disorders and issues that are going on. And that's on. totally how it's sort of happened in a couple of these trials is they've gone, mm. Oh, these people, you know, people with mental health conditions often have lots of mental health conditions, not just one. And so they'll notice a reduction mm. in symptoms of, you know, one thing or the other thing. But then another kind of point to that is that, you know, that's the case to an extent, um, but also to an extent within these trials, what they need to try and do is make the group of subjects as uniform as possible. So there's a lot of exclusion criteria. So there's a lot of like, you know, mm. you can't have this disorder as well as this disorder um, in the trials. And now that it's been approved in Australia, that's one of the concerns that a lot of people who are concerned about this um, have is that, the populations of people that this is now being approved for are not the populations of people that we've necessarily tested yet um, in terms of yeah, safety okay. and efficacy. Um, but yeah, once again, it still is only these two disorders so far that it's approved for. And it'll be interesting to see how it grows and changes. Um, I don't know, but I feel like I've really skipped ahead because I haven't told you all of the cool stuff that has happened trial wise. And so I just want to really quickly, I know that we're, you know, we've been going right. for I like non -linear a million years, um, but I want to just pull us back to 2011 where we had, yeah, the first clinical studies for psilocybin assisted therapy and MDMA assisted therapy were published. Um, what year did you say, sorry? 2011. 2011. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Um, so we were still able to get studies and stuff done, even though it hadn't been rescheduled yet. Yeah, we yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of break. Yeah, that, so that's still yeah. shit done. That's um, good. But you know, it like psilocybin was made illegal in 1970, and MDMA was made illegal in mm. 1986, and mm -hmm. 2011 was when the first studies were able to be published, because you 30 know, thirty years of bureaucratic yeah, red tape. So like the. Yeah. I'm pretty sure, um, so the MDMA study, I'll start there. It was sponsored mm. by slash like run by this company called MAPS, which stands for Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Um, and this was sort of mm -hmm. the company that was like spearheading a lot of these things. Um, and it was like established kind of back in the 1980s. Um, and mm -hmm. it took that long for them to get through like all the paperwork. There was like a study that tried to get off the ground in the earlier 2000s in like Spain that got shut down due to government pressure. 
And there was all this sort of like, mm. it's been a long road. And so Maps is the company like that now is still like they are the ones that have just applied to the FDA to try and reschedule MDMA. They're spearheading the movement in America to get MDMA rescheduled and um, approved over there. And yeah, like this is how long this effort has taken because of all of these extra hurdles, legal barriers that just like didn't yeah. need to be there necessarily. Um, mm. But anyway, we were able to publish this study in uh 2011, that found that MDMA-assisted psychotherapy was both safe and promising for the treatment of chronic treatment-resistant PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. So this was a double-blind study that had 20 participants that they put into two groups, MDMA or placebo. Um, This is an interesting Mm -hmm. point that I will come back to if you are thinking, how do you give a psychedelic placebo? That is, yeah. Um, So they had two dosing sessions uh, during this particular Mm -hmm. thing. And they found, um, most importantly, because this is like an early, early clinical trial, it was a safety study more than an efficacy study. So it found no serious adverse events, no uh, adverse neurological effects or clinically significant blood pressure increases. Like it was found to be safe. Um, But then on top of that, excitingly, Mm -hmm. it was found that significant reductions in the PTSD symptoms um, in the MDMA group compared to the placebo group. So this was really fun and exciting. And then there was also the psilocybin study, same year, 2011, that demonstrated that psilocybin-assisted therapy was safe and resulted in persistent mood-boosting effects for advanced-stage cancer patients grappling with end-of-life anxiety. Because this is where psilocybin research actually started. And this is where the sort of, you know, this is how they got their foot in the door of like, let me do a clinical trial. It was, these people are advanced stage mm. cancer patients. Like they're dying anyway. They're going to die anyway. Um, and because psilocybin <laughs> was almost a harder battle to fight. MDMA, they had the false sort of start. And these things were happening very sort of separately mm. by separate groups. Um, and, you know, so MDMA, yeah, had different barriers, but eventually got there with the PTSD. But yeah, psilocybin, they had to start with people that were pretty much already dying. Um, And so then Mm -hmm. they had 12 adults with advanced stage cancer and anxiety, and they found that psilocybin was safe in these people, no clinically significant adverse events. And these are like late stage cancer patients. This is not a, you know, this is a fragile population. Like, you know, it's not a hardy group of people. So that to me says a lot. Um, And it also found that there was a significant reduction in anxiety at one and three months after treatment and an improvement of mood that reached significance at six months. Um, and so a direct quote from this study is that these results support the need for more research in this long neglected field, because like at this point it was long neglected, um, in terms of, yeah, the, like psilocybin had been made illegal 41 years earlier. So we've lost like half a century essentially of, uh, potential progress here, which is really, frustratingly interesting. Um, Mm. So yeah, that happened in like 2011. And then sort of from there, clinical trials have just like, they expanded and have examined the potential of these treatments for like a bunch of stuff. So psilocybin assisted therapy, they looked, um, they found it reduces both immediate and long-term anxiety in once again, terminal patients. So people who are going to die anyway, because that's where they had to start um, with with conditions like cancer or HIV. um, And that these benefits Mm -hmm. lasted up to six months. Um, and the mood boosting like effects of psilocybin were kind of at this point they started being like, hang on, depression, mood boosting. Like this is 
cool. Um, yeah. And there were a bunch of really small studies looking at depression um, showing kind of promising things. And just to note, right, this 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 mood boosting isn't necessarily while the people are under the effect of the drug. We're talking No, like six months later. they've left the session, the drug is after Six months later. They're just feeling fucking, yeah. yeah. Yeah, which cool, is cool. amazing, right? Like nothing, no other depression thing. Yeah. Um, and essentially, there was a clinical, sorry, a a meta analysis published, which is where they essentially take a mm. bunch of stuff. So it was five different clinical trials involving 136 patients mm. um, with primary or secondary depressive disorders, um, and it concluded that yeah, psilocybin assisted therapy had both rapid and long term antidepressant effects with minimal side effects. Um, and there was one really cool study I read that was looking at people with moderate to severe depression, and they compared just two doses of psilocybin um, to a six-week course of escitalopram, which is a very common SSRI antidepressant medication. So both groups got therapy. Mm -hmm. Both groups got six weeks therapy. One of them was on an SSRI the whole time, and the other one, two of their therapy sessions, they were high on shrooms. Um, and mm-hmm. given like kind of currently, right, SSRI medication and psychotherapy is kind of what's considered the gold standard of depression treatment, right? Like that's yeah, kind that's, of, you know, that's like the one, two punch. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. So that's not only was psilocybin just as effective at reducing depression scores, um, in mm. the patients, the proportion of patients who no longer qualified as depressed after the treatment was twice as high in the psilocybin group. Ooh. Yeah. And that's not requiring any ongoing taking of medication. No. Like it is the case with SSRIs. Yeah, SSRIs yeah, are exactly. the one and done. There are, see our depression episode, I think we touch yeah. on SSRIs um, a lot more in that. So, yeah, it's, it's like, crazy. And then there's also, like, tentative hope in, in other conditions. Like, there's ones, people looking at psilocybin for alcohol use disorder um, or reducing smoking mm. in nicotine-dependent smokers. And then one particularly exciting one, or what I thought was particularly exciting, um, though I think the alcohol stuff is also exciting, but there was a what's called a phase one feasibility study, uh, which is, you know, the very first one you can do that's very much focused on safety, um, mm. that concluded it would be a safe option for anorexia. And this is exciting because... Like, this is a very vulnerable population health-wise, right? They have cardiac complications and glycemic complications that other groups don't. Anorexia is also the most deadly uh, of the mental illnesses, of the mental illnesses, you know, of these conditions pretty much Mm. because it comes with... So it's very risky to lose a lot of weight. Um, And there are currently no approved medications for anorexia. Um, Really? Yeah. Didn't know that one. So the fact, so this was kind of a study that found that it was, um, yeah, definitely safe for these people. And it also kind of showed a little bit of promise in terms of the results, um, in terms of helping. Uh, but that's not yeah. really what they were looking for. Um, but it was really interesting. It was a, it, they only did one psilocybin session within this study and, um, nine out of 10. So it was a small study, just had 10 people in it. Um, nine out of 10 of the people said yeah. that one session is not enough. Um, and because they okay. feel like they would know how to better navigate the session a second time round, which for something like psilocybin, where there's like a trip component to it different to MDMA, this feels kind of more important. Especially if it's like a person who has never mm. taken any psychoactive substance before, it would be a very 
um, fish out of water situation for them on top of going through that therapy mm. stuff. So I can see how having like a warm up session there, mm. so you know what and in, it's going to do to you, so it doesn't. Yeah. In fact, a lot of the the clinical trial protocols, um, both for psilocybin and for MDMA. Um, which I'll go through the MDMA studies in a second, but the ones that have multiple sessions that you're high for, not always, but tend to increase the dose each time. So they start off on like a lower dose and then it's a little bit higher the yeah. next time and then it's a little bit higher again on like the third time just to, you know, as you mm. get better at uh, piloting it or so, um, which makes sense. But yeah, so there's been a bunch of clinical trials looking at MDMA assisted therapy for a bunch of stuff as well. Um, but the research for this has primarily focused around like anxiety-based conditions. Cause like I said, the way MDMA works, it kind of, if it's working by this mechanism that makes you trust either, there's kind of two main ways that we think MDMA is working, which is it's either making you trust your therapist uh, more, <clears throat> which if you've got mm -hmm. trauma-based, anxiety-based things, that's good, that's what we want that's going to make therapy more effective. And it's also clearly affecting people's fear learning and how they learn whether something should be scary or not. Um, and that's kind of what my research yeah. is looking at. So once again, if it's going to affect your learning and fear learning, anxiety-based conditions make sense. Um, but yeah. one that I thought was really, really interesting is looking at MDMA's potential to lessen social anxiety in autistic adults, which I was like, of course, Ooh. like, of course, yeah. that makes so much sense. Like, um, so that's, there's been two, two, uh, pilot studies looking at that, that it looks quite mm -hmm. helpful, uh, potential, which is exciting. And then also looking at psychological distress relating to life-threatening illnesses and showing that it, it helps people mm -hmm. feel more at peace with their life-threatening diagnosis, which is perhaps, un uh, perhaps what we expect, um, and, you yeah. know, exciting because hopefully it'll get approved yeah. for use for more of this stuff. Um, but yeah, the most, by far the most expansive research into the MDMA-assisted therapy is for PTSD. Um, so a bunch of small studies demonstrating efficacy. But in addition to this, there was a phase three clinical trial. So that's kind of, mm. you know, your phase, um, your phase one is, is it safe? Your phase two is, okay, we know it's safe. Is it effective in a very small, selective, lots of exclusion criteria population Yes. And then phase three is like the big guns. Okay. Is it effective in like an actual sort of population that we might want to treat with this drug? Um, yeah. And the reason it's MDMA is not yet legal in America is because they wanted to wait until there was enough solid phase three clinical trial data before approving it, um, which there now is. And so I'll get to that in a second. But yeah, so there was, excitingly, mm -hmm. a phase three clinical trial of 104 people with moderate to severe PTSD, just finished, just published the other month, 2023. Um, so the study found that following treatment, 71% of the people who had MDMA no longer met the criteria for PTSD compared to just 48% in the group who received a placebo as well as therapy. I know I haven't spoken about the placebo Damn, yet. Damn, that, 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 is, that is huge numbers. Mm. Um, that is... Yeah, and so then... I see why it's been approved. Early follow-up data as well has shown that, yeah, the symptom severity stayed reduced for at least six months after the third dose of MDMA. And then, yeah, because this is such a recent trial... We only have up to six months worth of data, but then more should be published probably early 2024. Um, 
But this is where we're at at the moment is that it seems to be quite laughed to sing. And this comes off the back of like a, a previous 90-person phase three trial that had very similar results, um, which is very, very cool and exciting. Um, and also in this previous phase three, the researchers also tracked the alcohol use throughout the treatment because, as I mm-hmm. mentioned, this overlap between alcohol use and PTSD. Um, and they found that the MDMA group drank less. Um, Ooh. Yeah. That's very exciting. Yeah. Um, so even though these patients didn't have a formal alcohol use di- alcohol use disorder diagnosis, um, it's super exciting. And then there's also been like completely separately a small study that specifically looked at MDMA-assisted therapy for alcohol use disorder, but it had just like 14 patients in it. Um, but it... And then all these studies taken place, like, since that 2011 one came out? Oh, yeah, like, like, these are all, like, the ones that I've all just told you now have come out since, like, 2020. Mm. Like, this is in the last couple years. Oh, damn. Like, the the phase three three MDMA clinical trial was published in, Mm. like, November 2023 or, like, September 2023. Like, this is all now Mm -hmm. happening. Um, Yeah, which is really, really cool. Um, is there any juicy goss that you can fill us in on with your research or is it all under wraps until it's published kind of dealio? Um, well, I don't want you to out yourself. No, I mean, my, I was just compromise shit. My research is just trying to develop an animal model at the moment because how does one give therapy to a rat? How does one give MDMA assisted therapy to a rat? Um, and so we're just optimizing that so that once we have an established model, other people will be able to then like use that to zoom in on the brain and figure out mechanisms mm. um, is what yeah, my project sure. is currently. Yeah. But yeah, so I'm kind of, I'm trying to take a step back and be like, Hey, all of this stuff is showing real mm. clinical promise and it's just been approved in Australia. We still don't really know mm. why or how it works, which doesn't mean we shouldn't use it. There are a lot of drugs out there. Yeah. I should point out a lot of medications that we don't know how or why it works. Evidence that it's safe and that it works is enough, but Can we improve it? Can we optimize it? Can we, you know, maybe develop other drugs that do the same thing, but with, you know, less stigma attached, but that's a whole, you know, I don't know. There's, yeah, Yeah. reasons for zooming in, but I'm kind of trying to focus on the human studies because this is what's important for, like, these being rescheduled. You focusing on the human studies Um, in this episode. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry, that's what I mean. Which focuses on the animal models and the rats. Yes, exactly. I'm with you. Um, you. And so the one other study that was published relatively recently in 2022 that I'll bring up um, Mm -hmm. is this one was a really, really interesting one, I thought, um, because it looked at the lifetime use of MDMA ecstasy um, and psilocybin in terms of like, it got a bunch of people and it was just like an observational study. So it wasn't giving them anything. It was, uh, it was essentially surveying a very large number of people and being like, have you used ecstasy throughout your life? How much? Have you used psilocybin throughout your life? How much? They asked about a bunch of other drugs as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, how many times within your life have you had major depressive episodes? When were they? Blah, blah, blah. These sorts of things. And they found that lifetime use of MDMA is associated with significantly lowered odds of lifetime major depressive depressive episodes, and psilocybin was associated (laughs) with significantly lowered odds of past-year major depressive episodes. And none of the other drugs that they kind of asked for Mm. had this effect. It was just MDMA and psilocybin that seemed to maybe somehow be protective against 
depression or, you know, there's a correlation causation thing here. It's an observational study, but it's the opposite of what you would expect based on the media narrative, right? Um, That heavy drug users throughout their lives are less, actually less um, likely. So that's really interesting. And the other thing that I just... Because I I think it probably comes from like, you know, MDMA and psilocybin for the last, you know, 50 years basically have been put into the same box as these much heavier, harder drugs. Mm. Like, you know, ones I've said before, heroin, Mm. cocaine, Mm -hmm. fentanyl, whatever. And because they're lumped into that same category, people see these effects on users of those harder Mm. drugs and how it leads to a lot of life-destroying situations Mm. and depression Mm. and PTSD and all of this stuff. So it's just been swept in with all of that other stuff and any therapeutic things have been ignored for years, which is why it looks contrary to the media now. Yeah, there has been, you know, a little bit of a conceited effort uh, by, you know, some parties in the sense that like one, one example I will give is that there is evidence that in the nineties, one of the anti-ecstasy campaigns in the UK was at least partly sponsored by a UK brewing company, um, because of the effect that ecstasy was having on booze sales. Mm, Right. Um, and now we're looking at MDMA assisted therapy for alcohol use disorder. And it's like, yeah, so there's there's been a bit of, you know, stuff like that that's kind of taken advantage of how easy it has been to push these drugs in with that and in terms of the dangers, you know, yeah, there have been instances of people dying from taking these drugs, probably because the MDMA was mostly fentanyl, but the media is yeah. going to latch on to the MDMA part because it, you know... Uh, there's a narrative, but the thing that I think makes me so excited about this research and this rescheduling and the fact that this is happening is that it's to me, like this is the persistence of the reclamation of scientific knowledge, right? Like this is like Mm. facts per failing, like, you know, like this is, I don't know. Um, it's the truth breaking out after many years mm. of lots of different people trying to push for it with a lot of other people with mm. agendas or not agendas, whatever. Lots of people mm. have been pushing against this for a long time because of whatever the societal narrative I has mean, been and why ever that societal narrative has been. That's what it has been. So it's been a long journey to push past that. But truth is coming out. Mm. Science is coming out being like, hey, this shit's actually okay. Mm. And just because we're saying where you, it's cool to open up MDMA and psilocybin for these clinical purposes under these conditions doesn't mean we're saying, hey, everyone out, go go out and do meth mm. on a night out because science says it's cheap. That's not what we're saying no. at all. And I think we'll probably see a bit of pushback over the next number of years. And I imagine we already have seen it where people being like, oh, we've taken it too far. We say ecstasy is cool to use in a clinical space now. What's next? And all we got to do is keep pushing the truth, yeah. you know, without sounding like a conspiracy tootin' horn Joe Rogan. Honestly, so um, often I feel like a tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist when I talk about this stuff and I have to just keep reminding myself mm-hmm. that I am just a science communicator communicating what I have learnt. Um, and, yeah. you know, yeah, instead of... They just don't want to hear the truth, man. Yeah, but, you know, instead of leaning into that too hard. I'm just, I, yeah, I'm trying to focus yeah. on the excitement of the fact that this is, you know, despite all of that, like this is the knowledge that is prevailing. And I'm going to be like, <laughs> if 
fuck it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be the ultimate wanker right now and like quote myself because <laughs> there was a sentence that I wrote for an article that I wrote recently about this stuff for um, RSV. And it's just one of the, like, it's a good sentence. Um, and I wrote it, so I'm allowed to quote it, which was that. See citation me. Yeah, Huckstep23. Um, but yeah, <laughs> the renaissance of these compounds in therapy is a testament to the resilience of scientific curiosity and the relentless pursuit of better mental health treatments. Because that's what it is. That's a great sentence. Right? <laughs> Huckstep23. It's a good sentence. But that's like, but that's what this is for me, right? This is, this is mm. that whole. Yeah, it's renaissance of knowledge. It's the relentless. Anyway, we we get it, and it's it's. I'm losing my train of thought and brain right now because I feel like we've jumped around. And I the the thing I want to pull us back to just very quickly is the mm-hmm. fact that I kept mentioning placebo and being like, yeah, I want to just. I was curious, and about then we that. kept just talking about other interesting things, and so I f- it feels like a real segue, kind of off to the side, but it feels important to address, which is like. Um, how do you give a placebo for a psychedelic compound? And the very you know short, you're not tripping balls. <laughs> yeah, the very short answer is that like you don't, you can't. Like we're trying. So, yeah. um, there have been lots of different approaches to this. Um, there's something called an active placebo that you can give that like sometimes like a, an antihistamine that makes people a little drowsy, like something that gives a an effect. And it only obviously really works if you've never done the other drug before. So you don't know what it's meant to feel like. Um, I wonder if that's something that they're looking for when they're doing these double blind yes, studies. Um, and they said, so, you've never done it before. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that in particular, but I think a lot of it has just uh, where, where there's a, there's an element of just accepting that these groups a lot of them will know which group they're in or will be able to guess correctly, mm. but you won't, you don't tell them. Um, I wonder if there's a but way it is a big limitation. If he's testing for psilocybin, for example, your placebo group, you give LSD to, right? So it's still a psychedelic, but, but uh, it, it acts by a very similar, very similar brain mechanisms. Um, and in ah, fact, damn. LSD assisted therapy, there is a lot, I didn't talk about it today because we don't have the time, but there's a lot of uh, research mm. into that as well, and a lot of promising research. Like LSD works in a very similar way to psilocybin in terms of helping assisted therapy. I think psilocybin's just been more effective uh, because it doesn't last quite as long in the brain as LSD, so it's a little bit you know cheaper, more feasible, easier to manage. People like this idea that it comes from mushrooms, which therefore makes it natural, quote unquote. Even though we're using synthetic LSD, uh, sorry, synthetic psilocybin in these studies, like there's just you know there's sort of marketing reasons yeah. why psilocybin has taken off more than LSD for this purpose. But um, no, that wouldn't work yeah. because there would be too much of a compound, and it would also be effective. Um, but the kind of main thing is that like, you know, in animal studies, for example, where like they, the animal doesn't know, like, isn't going in there with this like expectation of one thing or the other. And you can look at mechanisms and you can give them a placebo, like just saline or something. And it doesn't matter that they don't feel anything because they didn't know that they were meant to feel something. Right. Yeah. Um, and you know, yeah, it's just one of those things that it's like, we haven't quite solved yet. Um, it is so I guess it's worth noting, but, yeah, that that's but potentially that's a, f- okay. a flaw in the room. Yeah, but, like, that's yeah. kind of the thing, right? It's, like, the thing is, even, like, look at those numbers that I, I said before, right? Which was, mm. yeah, so, like, 71% of 
people who had MDMA no longer met the criteria for PTSD and 48% got placebo and therapy and did, right? I Like, even if, like, there was a huge numbers, if there is, like, a 23% of people that are getting this extra benefit from therapy just because they know they're on MDMA and expect to get this extra benefit from therapy, like... Th- that is still that is not enough reason to not approve this thing you know yeah like that is not yeah. that is the not ethical is that is there, not there unethical that is tangible. withdrawing potential help from people who need it right or withholding sorry not withdrawing withholding like if you don't yeah. approve it based on that um and it's a thing that you know all of the scientists are aware of and try and mitigate as much as possible this idea of placebo but mm. yeah that that it remains a remains a thing um but Essentially, yeah, this is where we're at at the moment is it's been approved in Australia um, and the FDA in America um, is yet to follow suit. Um, What happened is both psilocybin and MDMA uh, were awarded what's called breakthrough therapy status by the FDA, which is a designation reserved for drugs that may offer substantial improvements over existing treatments, which is intended to speed up their development and review. Um, so they kind of got this fast tracked process and that's how these kind of trials were happening. And they just were waiting for this phase three data to come through um, and so mm. that's now come through. And so on the 12th of December, 2023, MAPS applied to the FDA for MDMA mm-hmm. approval. Uh, psilocybin, the application hasn't been made yet. Um, this is hot, hot off yeah. the press. This was just a couple of weeks So literally, ago. so the application hasn't been accepted yet. So the, this is such a fucking long process. So the application will probably be accepted mm. sometime around February, which leads to inspections and audits. And then if they're granted priority review, then the deadline for FDA decision will be like August. And then there's like usually a three month window between like approval and rescheduling. So that's if everything goes smoothly, it'd be August, what, September, October, November, like this time next year, it might, America Mm. might be where we are now. So like in Australia. And even though it's like, you know, different countries have different regulations and bureaucratic processes they have to go through. Mm. Like America has the FDA, we have whatever the TGA said we have. Therapeutic Goods Association. Yeah. Um, so th- the fact that Australia has stepped up and has started doing this mm. and we'll, we will start to see results from our studies and stuff that will enable other well, countries like, and places like America it's not the s- be able to push for this more. But like we used like the studies, like the MAPS studies, which are sort of based in America mm. to make the argument that it should be legal here. Like it's the rescheduling mm. and approval in Australia isn't going to give us more trials. It means that psychiatrists, doctors can actually start mm. rolling this out as therapy. We're going to get case studies. We're going to, Australia is actually going to be like the, the lab rat for like, how does this work? in a policy sense, in a, like, how does this practically pay out, play out, sorry. Like, you know, there's a whole lot of, like, how, you know, how do we train all these therapists in order to deliver this? You know, is there a standard therapeutic protocol of the type of therapy we should be running these patients through? Is there, like, Mm. um, you know, like, we just don't know this sort of stuff yet. It's, like, psychiatrists are the ones who are able to, like, who have been given approval, but it's like, if you know how much it costs to fucking see a psychiatrist, it's like 700 bucks for an hour at cheapest, right? And if you've got an eight hour session, like, is this going to be affordable? Like, how is this going to actually Mm. work? And there's actually been a lot of like criticism, I would say, or just 
I don't know. Um, caution. Like there's just, there's, there's yeah. optimistic, cautious optimism, I would say, is the general sort yeah. of vibe. Because the weird thing is that the TGA kind of didn't really consult with Australian researchers and experts in this space. Um, mm-hmm. like it, it caught a lot of Australian researchers who are in this space, like it caught us all by surprise when the TGA, cause what happened? So the kind of mm. timeline that I gave you around, like, uh, the, that's the American sort of timeline of it'll be accepted around February, blah, blah, blah. What happened in Australia is that in March, 2022, um, a group called MMA, which is Mind Medicine Australia, which is kind of like MAPS is doing it over there. It, this is a non-for-profit group in Australia, Mind Medicine Australia, yeah. that is spearheading this. They applied to the TGA in March 2022 to try and reschedule MDMA mm-hmm. and psilocybin. The TGA said no in September 2022 as like an interim decision. And then mm-hmm. this got, there was a bunch of like public submissions and um, notably a presentation by Professor David Nutt, who is, he's a UK, he's... <laughs> Sorry, I'm sure he's a great guy. I've, I've met him. I've, I, he's, you know, he seems he's pretty cool. And he's, but he is based in London, based in, like he's a UK mm-hmm. researcher looking at this stuff and, you know, but he's sort of involved with the head honchos of Mind Medicine Australia um, somehow. And so he made a presentation yeah. to the TGA in November. And then in February this year, 2023, it was announced that, oh, actually, never mind our no. Yes, we're going to approve it. And we were all just like, what mm. the fuck? Like, we were kind of shook. Hell yeah. And it was like, yeah. no, the TGA didn't ask us or any of the Australian researchers. Mm. I mean, we like, and I've listened to some interviews and read some interviews with like a, a couple of people more in the clinical space here who were like, I probably would have said yes, mm. but I'm, you know, offended they didn't ask sort of thing. Not not quite in that language, yeah. but that it's a little weird sort of thing. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's that's how it happened in Australia. It was announced in February for then a, approval from 1st of July this year. And so then since the 1st of July this year, it has been legal technically, like psychiatrists can do it, but it's mm-hmm. not you know, Australia is just, we don't really have the infrastructure yet. And so that's why it's like, oh, we need to, you know, we just need to be a little bit cautious, right? Some clinicians are worried about the the framework in terms of access to these drugs. Um, currently, we don't synthesize it in Australia. There are pharmaceutical companies that are like popping up to start synthesizing this, but, you know, mainly we have to import it because there was all this stuff around because MDMA, right, because Merck first patented it back in 1912, then there was no sort of pharmaceutical companies pharmaceutical companies were set to profit less from sponsoring any clinical trials or uh, applying to, you know, the FDA or the TGA, which is why it's these other groups that have had to like come up and fight harder because there's no, because everything in science is, you know, profit. Um, Yeah. And so it's kind of like these pharmaceutical companies are now popping up one, I cannot make this up. I saw it in a paper as like a thing and I was like, that can't be real. And I found it. I found the website, Woke Pharmaceuticals. Um, they're developing <laughs> synthetic psilocybin and their logo is a little mushroom. I was like, I cannot make this up. Like, really? You called yourself Woke Pharma? Sure. Go hard. They're going to um, struggle with that brand. It's I, go off, I You guess. know, right? I, interesting. So it's just, <laughs> I don't know. Um, and the thing that I think is really, really interesting about both of these drugs mm. is that they were both previously illegal or illicit, right? Which means that they are Mm. traditionally stigmatized. And we've talked about that a lot more to do with MDMA. We've definitely focused more on MDMA because that's what I know more about um, personally. Yeah. But, you know, traditionally stigmatized. But public perception of these things is changing and changing very fucking fast. Um, Which means that 
these medications now sit at this like super interesting juncture between stigma and hype. And both of these things mm. are dangerous. Like it will be important to manage both of these because they both have the potential to harm how successful this rollout is. So like obviously yeah. the stigma, you've got to be careful around the stigma, but the hype is an interesting one um, because I saw a really interesting um, talk on this at a conference where someone who was doing psilocybin research was like, we know that this is not a miracle. I think they were doing it for anorexia and in animals, but they were like, we know that this doesn't work for mm. everyone. It works for a group of the population and the media needs to be careful about saying that these are just going to be like a magical cure for everyone. They're going to solve everyone's, you know, because then what happens is you get someone who it won't work for or doesn't work for, who thinks that this is the miracle cure, goes in, tries to do it. It doesn't work. And they go, oh no, it's all a fucking lie because it didn't work for me. So it doesn't fucking work, you know? And then, so if you overhype something and then it doesn't work for people, that it, it crashes and burns. Whereas you, so you have to kind of manage expectations as well. And so these drugs, you've got to, you've yeah. got both ends. And I, I feel like that's really unique and it'll be so interesting to see it play out. It's so interesting that Australia where, is the like, yeah, like it's just, I don't know. And there's so much like policy and history and politics as well as science and safety that, I don't know. It's just very, I'm I'm I cautiously optimistic got, and I'm excited like, to be part of it, but yeah. Like you say, you've got both these things happening at the same time. Mm. It's not like we're in a grey area in between hype and fucking what's no the other uh, word? stigma. Um, stigma. It's you've got a, a sect of the population who still wholeheartedly believes in this stigma for whatever reason. And mm. then you've got this sect of the population that's like, oh shit, this is this the, the best next shit ever. Thing. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And it's go. like, you know, um, not like not to talk too much about the politics of it, but it seems like the current divide on pro-drug, anti-drug around MDMA and psilocybin mm. is not a left-right political divide. Like you have yeah. your, you know, Joe Rogans and so forth of the world talking about mm. like optimizing one's potential using, you know, stuff like this. I don't know I, if yeah, Joe Rogan necessarily a great example. has, but like, I was going to give, he, he's definitely a great example of the, the hype and yeah. of the spectrum. So you've got, and in terms of his politics, he's not necessarily a left no. or a right guy, but he definitely features both and tends towards one political spectrum more um, than another is all I'll say. Yeah. And it's just one of the, but, you've got, um, you've got people who are heavily right being like, oh yeah, you know, hype, mm. but then you've also got traditionally that sort of, you know, psychedelic counterculture movement of your hippies and whatever, uh, often you're kind of left-leaning progressives. I don't know. It's, it's this mm. weird, it's this weird thing where there's this, yeah, binary divide that seems political, but it doesn't follow along traditional political lines. And I, I just, I'm not the person qualified to, I don't know. I wish I understood this stuff better is the point. Um, cause I find it really interesting. Um, something that I, I believe about politics and political spectrums that it's not just this linear binary one end. You've got the left leaning people, one end, you've got the right leaning people mm. with politics. There's so much more nuance to it, mm. but because we so readily jump on these labels and identities of the left and the right, mm. the conservatives and the progressives, there's a thousand no, other directions so that this spectrum goes. Absolutely. So I think maybe the fact that 
you've got the stigma people and the hype people existing at all ends mm. of this spectrum can mm. maybe help highlight and show people that being a lefty or being a righty doesn't isn't a thing that exists outside of the identity mm. that we assign to it to push our own opinions yeah. and political agendas. No, totally. You know, it's it's just more complex and nuanced than that to be as simple as left versus right yeah. when it comes to anything. Yeah. Um, um, and then, yeah, I just, it's also just then we now are in this, it's this um, idea of dialectics and like holding two seemingly contradicting ideas as simultaneously true mm. um, and... Yeah, it makes sense. Good old double think. Yeah. Um, and it's like, mm. it makes sense then seeing these drugs as something that you have to simultaneously hold the stigma and the hype that they then also mm. simultaneously hold different political, you know, it's just there's a lot of accepting complexity that's coming with this. And I really enjoy that. Exactly. Because that's Which how Which I think you could argue is a big be. part of what happens when you go under this sort of treatment and you have to start to accept these complexities mm. and nuances and not see everything in black and white but I, that's just hearsay mm. but you, you, you know what I'm saying yeah <laughs> um, and I think what is really interesting um, is to see kind of where this moves you know beyond potentially sitting in a room with a therapist um, while you're on this drug and they're not, and you have a therapy session because you've got a diagnosably distressed level of, you know, mental state. Mm. Um, because there's definitely, so Harriet DeWitt is a scientist who is doing a lot of sort of MDMA, um, research, looking at the mechanisms and stuff. And I listened to a really interesting interview with her and she said, um, she raised this idea of like MDMA, like how she wants to do a study in the future, look, getting people with different political views, putting them both mm. on MDMA and putting them in a room together essentially and seeing if it helps facilitate political conversations with more empathy Ooh. and understanding for the Ooh. other side. And this is just in like a oh. clinic, you know, not a clinical trial because I guess it's not clinical if it's not medical. And a lot of Harriet DeWitt's yeah. work is looking at sort of, yeah, MDMA just facilitating empathy or whatever from a non-clinical standpoint, like just what does this drug do to our interaction with the world? And this was an idea oh, that I she raised. That a lot. And I was like, you know, like just the future of like how, you know, this is once again, though, like hype, 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 let's not like overhype it. Let's be yes. so, so cautious. But I'm just, I get excited thinking mm. about, you know, potential directions outside of, uh, you know, just, just, yeah, where this can expand to. Um, and it's, yeah, it's cool that Australia is leading the way, but it also potentially will not be cool if it all goes to shit here. Um, we just have it's to cool. watch and it's wait. It's exciting. There's a lot of uh, potential that comes mm. with this because it's so under-researched and so new, but we have to tread so carefully mm. because of its history and where our culture is at at the moment yep. with fucking everything mm. and how easily stuff can be misconstrued. Totally. Disinformation, yada, yada, yeah. yada, et cetera, ad nauseum. Um. It's... A lot of potential, but we've got to tread carefully. So before I, you know, I, I know I'm just, I'm noticing the time and, you know, how long this episode's been going already, but I've decided, fuck it, <laughs> because we make the rules and this is the last episode for the season, for the year. It's been a big year, so y'all get a big episode because I got more to say. And we had a break. 
we, we yeah. had a break last True. month. True, we weren't so here last month, so in a, way, double podcast a double episode today. makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> no. Let's go with Exactly. That. That's totally, we're doing it. Because before I drag us on, I just, I feel like it would be rude if I skipped, um, you know, the, the last two things that I kind of wanted to talk about. One of which, Matt, I feel rude if I skipped it because it was a thing that you actually messaged me about before this mm. podcast. Um, so I don't know. I feel like this is, I'm skipping, this is a listener question. It's not the listener question. I do also have a listener question, but. This is a co-host question. This is a, yeah. Is there, do you want to. It was from a, um, I believe from a TikTok that I watched. Because mm. um, I spent a lot of time on that app. Mm-hmm. Lol. Haha, <laughs> Gen Z. Anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> and addictions to social media as well as. Anyway. It's all just dope. <laughs> the guy. Anyway. Yeah, anyway, it's pretty dope. All the dope you memes. Know what I mean. Um dope memes, am I dope right? Dope memes uh-huh. for dopamine. Uh-huh. Anyway. Anyway, the point anyway. is what is it so, that I'm making sure that uh, I talk about? <laughs> what is often associated with MDMA and its recreational use is the come down that mm, comes from it mm-hmm. afterwards. I.e. MDMA lifts you up, you go crazy, you go high, mm-hmm. and then the next day, after that massive mm. boost of I wanna say serotonin, mm. um, um, after that massive serotonin boost, the next day, as the story goes, mm. you have a massive come down mm. because you've just had this massive boost of serotonin. Your brain isn't producing it as much. So the so, next day, yeah. you're now lacking in serotonin. Yeah, I think the, the video I sent you was talking about um, opposing that common mm. idea around it where people who have been taking MDMA in these clinical settings aren't experiencing the come down. So maybe the source of the come down isn't the MDMA and the boost of the serotonin. It's the fact that you were just out partying all night long and you just feel shit and hung over. Yeah. Tired. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thoughts as someone who researches MDMA. Yeah. I wanted you to fact check that video I saw on the internet. Yes. Um, and my fact check was like, yes, no, legitimately everything that the person in that video said, I don't remember what they said exactly, but I was like, yeah, no, that's, that's legit. So we'll link it. no, what you've, what you said, um, was around this idea of, I think the way I've heard it phrased most commonly is like your serotonin is depleted the next day, or often it's like yeah. two days after. I think the idea of the Tuesday blues or something is a, a phrase that I've heard before, but it's, yeah, it's around this idea of because of this huge serotonin boost, then it gets used up and it's depleted. And so you feel like the rebound effect of that afterwards. Um, That's just not, first of all, that doesn't make sense from a Mm. scientific basis on how we know that these drugs work with serotonin. Um, And also the fact that, so what we also know, um, and something that I, I don't think I mentioned is that if you are on an SSRI, serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, um, they actually, like, you you shouldn't take that and also do MDMA. Like, you need to sort of stop the SSRI because there's evidence that it decreases the effect of the MDMA, which kind of doesn't make a lot of sense intuitively because you're like, oh, SSRI, more serotonin, so how does it counteract? MDMA, even more serotonin. Um, yeah, so there's Double a lot of, serotonin. you know, once again, mechanistic stuff around MDMA that we don't quite understand. Also, as per our antidepressants episode, a lot of mechanistic stuff around SSRIs that we don't understand. Um, yeah. But the idea that your serotonin gets depleted, like, just that doesn't make sense. And that's not what happens. Um, and what's really interesting is that, yeah, none of the trials, clinical trials of the any of the conditions that I mentioned... Um, have found this, you know, 
come down effect or like crash afterwards. Um, in fact, so I've got a quote from the alcohol use disorder MDMA trial, um, which is, we found that rather than a come down, participants reported a positive mood the week after the MDMA session. Um, no trials have found any increase in suicidality, which is a huge thing normally associated with the come down. Um, in fact, the only thing that I could find was that in one of the PTSD studies, one out of 46 people uh, tapped out of the trial early for what sounds kind of like come down vibes. So like, it's just maybe not super common. Um, but the thing that, you know, it makes a lot of sense to me and also to most of the researchers sort of doing this in the mm. sense that if you think about people in these clinical trial scenarios versus like ravers, who are the people who report this sort of come down thing, you know, people in studies are going to yeah. be, like you said, well rested. They're going to be hydrated. They're told to eat before they come into the trial. There is control over the temperature of the room. Like they're not dancing, so they're not like sweating, or whatever. There's no alcohol or other drugs interacting. It's just pure MDMA. But also it's pure MDMA as in it's lab based. Like it's not cut with anything. You know exactly what it is. Like it's, you know. Not whatever you're able to get off the street. Yeah. And they just don't, it's just, yeah, it's, it's not. It's not a thing. It's not a real concern and it's yeah. not a real thing that's being uh, caused by the MDMA. Um, just like, yeah, there's no abuse potential or it's no, people aren't going to, well, not no abuse potential. That's not the correct way to phrase that. These drugs are not addictive, in particular psilocybin. Like you're not going to get addicted to it. Um, and so a lot mm. of these sort of, yeah, misconceptions prevail, but like, the clinical trials, I think, are going to do a lot of good in terms of shedding light on, yeah, just what science, what is actually science and what is fiction that has been sort of used to drive this narrative. Um, and even from, like, a standpoint of those who use MDMA recreationally, this, I mean, whether or not you are supportive of that idea or not, you being the royal you here, mm. um, I'm saying it's something that is going to happen because it's something that has been happening for almost as long as MDMA has been around, especially mm. during like the 21st century. Mm. So if we now have this knowledge that the come down isn't a thing that is caused by MDMA, then for the recreational user, they can be like, okay, so what else am I doing when I'm going mm. out that could be mm. causing this come down? And maybe I can take steps to mitigate that. So, you know, I can still have a safe recreational time using the drug mm. and then have my health overall be better for yeah. it. Because it's not the MDMA well, that's causing this, it's something else. I mean, you know, regard theoretically. regardless of, I think like completely regardless and irrespective of whatever opinions mm people have around the legalization mm. of recreational MDMA or not. I think there's two mm. sort of important points that you you make or bring up around this or that come up for me when you say this, which is, um, yeah, number one, if people who are recreationally trying to use MDMA or like buying MDMA on the street mm. and so forth, um, like I want, I really, I think the danger here around sort of promoting this study for like recreational users to be like, oh, there's no come down, like MDMA is safe. I'm going to do it more. Um, I want to point out that like the problem <laughs> with the MDMA that you buy on the street is that it's mostly not MDMA. Like, you know, mm. someone, like someone can be all for the legalization of recreational MDMA and still not support 
or promote or advocate people illegally seeking recreational MDMA. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because it's it's not that the same sense. thing. And so we just have to also be, yeah, yeah, just be careful with these studies and be like, you can be, be like, yeah, pure lab grade MDMA is Gucci. So go, go off and do drugs on the street. Like that's, those are not the same idea. Mm. Um, but then I think the sort of, flip of that, not flip of that. I don't know. You know, like you said, what can I do to mitigate this, you know, harm reduction around drug use, uh, and problematic drug use. Even if you do think this is a problematic drug, even around like meth and ice and heroin and all sorts of things, I think we should be looking at Mm. harm minimization and, you know, yeah. If maybe we point out to people that, you know, MDMA, pure MDMA should not cause this come down effect and people are doing it recreationally and they're experiencing this effect, perhaps that will flag to them that what they are taking is not MDMA and they should exercise some more caution. Or perhaps it'll flag to Mm. them that, yeah, maybe it's just because you're dehydrated and the people in these studies are hydrated. Or maybe it's because you're drinking alcohol as well and you should maybe not do that at the same time if you don't want the come down. Like, you know, it it can be used for good. I think we just have to be careful, um, is my... Just like what we were saying before, with that cautious optimism. Yeah, I mean, that's... Potential, but tread carefully. Yeah, all of these things. Um, And then Mm. there's one last, one last MDMA psilocybin. Well, it's a psilocybin-related thing, but one last drug thing that I'm going to just, once again, in a very non-chronological, scatterbrained order, (laughs) um, address real quick. Really quick. Hey, it's fitting. Quick, yeah. Which is the idea of microdosing psilocybin, specifically, because I think that... Um, is a thing that at least for me, before I entered this field of research, like before I I entered this as a professional, the thing that I had heard most about people using mushrooms for, I think was actually microdosing. Like, I I feel like that is a huge, there's, there's lots of, lots of anecdotal evidence around this idea of microdosing, uh, improving mood and well-being, creativity, cognition. Um, for people who don't know what microdosing is, I mean, kind of in the name, it's fairly obvious microdose. It's a very, very small dose. It's a dose that is quote unquote below perceptible levels. So like you don't, Mm. in theory, you don't notice that you're on it because you don't trip. You don't get the psychedelic psychoactive effects. Um, but this is where I say it, like, it, it gets a bit questionable around, like, there's not super clear lines around what counts as a microdose or a macrodose. And the thing is, there was a study that was published in June last year. So 2022, um, that essentially was just like, yeah, public out, public uptake of microdosing has outpaced evidence, which I think like really sums it up in that, heaps of people are doing it and there's just, there's just not heaps of evidence. There's lots of, you know, there are small studies and observational studies and there, but most of the studies that have been done, people could, you know, the ones that were sort of, yeah, people could tell which like, like even if it was a microdose, they still, I think it was like two thirds of the people were able to pick which group was psilocybin. I'm like, well, then is that really a microdose in the actual definition? Well, I think with microdosing, right, you, you've got a case of the, for want of a better word, clinical definition potentially being different from how it's been co-opted by the layman. It's not even a co-opted instance, right? It's the opposite in this instance in that it's not microdosing the term being co-opted by the layman. It's the clinical people trying to build upon what has been used quote unquote recreationally, but you know, by Mm. this, like the psychonauts as you know, people often call themselves people who use (laughs) psychedelics 
like people have been figuring this stuff out for their own sort of personal therapeutic uses for decades. And it's only now that we're trying to like put that into scientific clinical codation, I guess. Um, And we're coming up against Mm. these walls of like, there is no consistency around what people have considered microdosing and around like the schedule of, you know, how many days you should go between or whatever. Like there's, there's so much stuff. And it was, I could only actually find one like double blind placebo controlled study. And it was published in August, 2022. So recently uh, that essentially did not present essentially was looking at microdosing psilocybin and it did not present significantly positive impact on creativity, divergent and convergent thinking, cognition, physical activity levels, and self-reported measure of mental health and well-being. So it did nothing. They found no evidence of any effect. And But that's one study because that's all that exists. Like, so pretty much the point around microdosing yeah. is there you, you will hear shit tons about it because there is shit tons of anecdotal mm. evidence, but all of the evidence that you hear is just going to be anecdotal and by that I mean it's people talking about their experiences rather than these like scientifically organized clinical trials which to me which we do have for these therapies yeah for the that we're looking yes. into where you take one um, larger dose there hasn't been the same mm, study done into microdosing no. outside of people doing it of their own volition yep. and having um, personal experiences but the point that I will bring up is that if you think back to like the start of the MDMA story, it was the same thing. We mm. had all of these sort of reports of people that were anecdotal mm. by definition, reports of people using MDMA assisted therapy, like MDMA to assist psychotherapy both safely and effectively. But then when it was moved to be outlawed mm. due to the lack of clinical trial data that we now have, they were like, yeah. nah. Um, and so just because there is a lack of clinical evidence it doesn't mean that all of the anecdotal evidence around microdosing psilocybin is wrong. It doesn't mean that it's right either. Yeah. It might still also just not be a thing. Um, but I just want to point out that, yeah, lack of clinical evidence doesn't mean that something doesn't work. It just means that we don't have evidence yeah. yet. But it also doesn't mean, like, just because mm. MDMA, we got work. MDMA wrong doesn't You're mean You're not that, saying you know, one way or the other. Exactly. I'm just, you I know, think I'm, once I'm, again, I'm the overall the message of this episode of, um, is keep an open mind and... <laughs> yeah. Trust the science as it so- appears or something. Um. I think that I'm, I'm optimistic for the future of microdosing clinical studies because I feel you'd much easier you'd have a much easier time being able to find a placebo for that. Because if the mm, whole idea of a microdose right. is that you don't really notice what's going on in these people yeah. who haven't done psychedelics before, then you'd be like, we're giving you a microdose and we're giving you a microdose yeah. in quotations. Right. And um, then you'll be able to see whether it is a purely placebo thing, like that first study yeah. that or that only study mm. that has been done might suggest, or whether mm. not, um, you know. Yeah, I think it's interesting that there's such lack of evidence because of stuff like that, like it'd be easier, but then perhaps, mm. yeah, the, the, obviously the trials that, you know, sort of were done didn't really find anything. And so it's once again, one of those things where like, because it's a microdose, I think anything that you do see is going to be less obvious than a macro dose. And so mm. in terms of like where to begin in terms of trying to collate evidence to appeal to, drug scheduling bodies and whatever, like policymakers and stuff, you yeah. need to go for the things with the most identifiable, obvious effect that you can like capture in your research and put on a graph that is convincing. And I think yeah. that's why most people are putting all of their time and energy and effort into researching macro doses. It's easier to get funding for because the results are more impressive just by virtue of 
you know, it's what you're doing. It's a much easier springboard into the pool um, that is psychedelic yeah. treatments. So, you know, but once again, watch this space. We'll see everything. I feel like in the last handful of years, like the last five years, just everything has in- increased with such a rapid pace. And especially now with rescheduling in Australia, I think research is going to, it's going to explode. It's going to, I don't know. It's going to be really interesting um, upcoming time for psychedelics in, you know, yeah, just policy ways and also just how that then translates to medical use that, you know, and I'm going to just try not be too angry that all of this shit could have happened half a century ago um, and just try instead, like That's I said, right. focus on we get the, the chance to be on the forefront of you it. You know, the narrative that is um, how beautifully poetic and what a testament to the pursuit of truth. I don't know. That's look, mm. that's what I have to say on psychedelics. Uh, have a, well, not on all psychedelics. Sorry. That's what I have to say specifically on the history and chronological narrative <laughs> of, uh, MDMA and psilocybin and how we've arrived where we are today, the end of December, mm. 2023 here in Australia, where these things, are, MDMA has been approved for psychedelic assisted therapy for PTSD and psilocybin has been approved for depression. It's exciting stuff. Yeah, it's exciting stuff. It is. Um, I'm excited. Yeah, but not too excited. No, because cautious optimism. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, amazing episode, big one for the end of the year. But it wouldn't be a Curiosity Killed the Rat episode if we didn't finish with a listener question. So for of the course. last little bit of this episode, I'm gonna drag us along to our listener question. If you, dear listeners, um, have a listener question, anything uh, that is you know, that you think that a scientist, um, yeah, I was gonna say that you think that a scientist, you know, could give an answer to and have credibility in doing so. Um, or, you know, just, just email me and say, hi, I don't really mind. Um, curiosityrat (laughs) at gmail.com is our email address. And this is a, I picked this one because it's a little bit fun. Uh, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw it to you, Matt, um, as well. Okay. Which is, this is from Dan. If a tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? <laughs> uh, Sorry, sound guy. That's a fil- It's a philosophical that's a question. Philosophy sound. Um, not a. But I have some science. Do 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 you want me to answer as a sound guy or as a philosopher? As a sound guy, we're taking. So Dan has taken what is obviously a very classical mm. philosophical uh, question and sent it into a science fucking podcast. So we're going to give him a fucking science answer. Uh, is what we're going to do. I'm going to go. With yes, mm. because I'm going to go under the definition. I could be a wanker about it and say no in the sense of maybe it only becomes sound once it reaches mm-hmm. your ears mm-hmm. and it's perceived as that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm going to go with yes, because what sound is before it reaches your ears is still a thing that everyone will hear the same, no matter which ear hears it or whether a microphone picks it up Mm. or whether there's no one there to hear it because sound is just pressure waves. Mm. And if a tree falls into the forest, assuming this forest has an atmosphere Mm -hmm. and a ground, mediums for which these waves to travel through, tree falls, impact happens, Mm. forces are fucking dissipated, waves travel through the air, which may dissipate before anyone gets the chance to hear Mm. it, but it's still a sound. Mm. My my guy still made a sound. And so, like, look, I would agree with you. Um, That logic Mm. makes sense to me, especially what you said around the microphone, because this is where I'm going to be, like, really Mm. pedantic around the wording of the question. It's like, if no one is there to hear Mm. it, does it make a sound? So you could have a microphone Mm. and a recording. You could have, like, a little recording cassette going, and there's no one around to hear, but the thing is recording. 
it still captures mm. the sound. So then what? You've trapped the sound and you hear it mm. later. But at the time that the tree fell, mm. no one was around, but then this sound was captured. How was it captured if it wasn't made? That's my but. And you know what? If you want to get really pedantic mm. and captured sounds don't count and there has to be some sort of living organism around to hear that sound occur, right? Okay, no people are there. Sure, whatever. No one? Sure, let's say there are no animals around. The tree fell in a forest. <laughs> there are trees around. Trees are living organisms. I don't know if they can hear things, but no. I'm pretty sure it would be able to pick up on the fucking vibrations through the mycelium and the roots or whatever. So yeah. I'm, I'm still going by it. It makes it makes a sound yeah. no matter which way you spin. I mean, um, yeah, like I've said, I agree with you. But then I think just because, you know, I'm a good scientist, I'm not just going to go on opinion. I have a couple. I found a couple of definitions because I kind of I thought this through as well. And then I was like, okay. I'm just going to see what go what on, the Internet on. says to me slash what like, you know, get some get some good opinions out there. So, um. How do we define sound is where I've decided to go with this is look up the definitions because like, look, to summarize where we got is that we've got this idea that sound can be a mechanical wave created by a source, travels through a medium like Mm -hmm. air, definitely generates sound waves. But also sound sound as we perceive it is a sensory experience, right, that occurs when Mm -hmm. they're detected and interpreted by the brain. And both of these fucking definitions came up and it blew my mind because I was like, I don't know, I was going with sound waves. So we've got the Merriam-Webster dictionary that says both A, Mm -hmm. sound is mechanical radiant energy that is transmitted by by longitudinal pressure waves in a material medium such as air and is the objective cause of hearing, which was a weird way to phrase it. But sure, sound is mechanical waves Definition A would say, yes, it still makes a sound. But then there was also a definition B, which was sound is the Mm -hmm. sensation perceived by the sense of hearing. In which case, if it's Mm -hmm. the sensation is sound, then the sensation is not caused um, if there's no one around, which is an interesting... So then we've got the Oxford Languages uh, Dictionary, which is the one that Google uses and, and says is the most reputable... Um, which defines sound as vibrations that travel through the air or another medium and can be heard when they reach a person or animal's ear, which is kind of both definitions in one. But to me, it's like it can yeah. be heard, doesn't say it has to be heard to be a sound. Has to be heard. Um, so yeah. I would say Oxford is on our side. Um, yeah. Wikipedia. Macquarie. Oh, I didn't, I didn't, I don't have Macquarie. Um, but Wikipedia, because that's an important thing to mm-hmm. check. Um, Wikipedia's one was interesting to me because it says, in physics, sound is a vibration that propagates as an acoustic wave through a transmission medium, such as a gas, liquid, mm. or solid. In human physiology and psychology, sound is the reception of such waves and their perception by the brain. So I thought that was interesting because I am not a physicist. I would say mm. I'm much closer to being a human physiologist or psychologist. And it's Wikipedia is claiming that I would say that sound waves should be the perception, not the vibration. All right. I have a counter argument, right? What I'm hearing is that sound is a word that has two similar but distinctly (laughs) different definitions. One definition is when sound is created, where it comes from, Mm. what it is as a physical thing through space. That's the fucking physics definition of it. Then on the other side, you've got a separate definition, Mm. the human physiological side of ones, which is our perception and reception 
of that wave and how it's interpreted and perceived by the brain, right? The question is, when a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? We are talking about the tree's perspective of things here. Is a sound being made, mm. i.e. the physics, physical definition, are sound waves produced by the tree falling in the forest? The answer is yes. If there's no one around to hear it, can anyone hear that sound? No. Um. So there was not a sound in that sense, but... I would still argue, yes, it does make a sound because physics, um, and that's the definition. Well, I would like to. I've got two more, uh, two, two just expansions upon this. Um, first of all, okay. just Collins Dictionary added an important definition that I think you didn't think of when you said there were only two. It said, um, "Sound is a singer or a band. Sound is the distinctive quality of their music." So, oh yeah, how it <sighs> sounds. So the, the sound, you the, know, this this band has timbre. a real good sound. You know, it's a distinctive, uh, so yeah, I would say that the tree probably has a distinctive, you know, quality to its fall. Um, it makes a sound. sound. It's got a genre. (laughs) But then also, you know, you were like, because physics. And so the final interesting definition, because I was like, okay, I've just found a bunch of random Mm. dictionaries and Wikipedia and fucking whatever. Let's actually go Mm -hmm. to Google Scholar and have a look. And so I found an 1894 book, uh, The Theory of Sound by Lord Rayleigh, full name, John William Strutt, third Baron Rayleigh of Turling Place. Holy um, shit. This guy won the- Fuck, I need a spoon. This guy- I'll reach up his ass for it. I mean, he won the 1904 Nobel Prize in Physics for the isolation of argon, which is an inert atmospheric gas. He, was, he did some good shit um, for physics. Like, so, you know, this guy is a physicist. He's won a Nobel Prize in Physics. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a book about the theory of sound. And he talked about sound okay. as a sensation and that the physical and sound waves as the physical phenomena which constitute the foundation of sound. So this guy, OG physics mate, would argue no. So, but this was, you know, pre-1900. Okay. So I think we've just I think it's just a time thing. And I think, you know, when this first this question was first raised as a philosophical thing, it's when both of these definitions were kind of equally mm. existing and made people think and converse or whatever, and just definitions change and language is complex and words mean multiple things and, and evolves. You know. It's a yeah. But I would still argue yes. And look, full disclosure, this book was like four hundred and eighty pages long and I only read like the first page of chapter one where he was talking about <laughs> Sound waves as a physical look, phenomenon I'm just and a sound fucking, as a sensation. But, I'm just a guy know, in my room talking uh, into a microphone, coming up with semantic wank to support my mm, argument. But, you, but know. you know, Dan, if you really want to read this whole book, I will link it in the description, uh, <laughs> the reference. So if you really want to know some more. If it's the Dan I'm thinking it's it exactly is, who sure you're thinking it is. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so... Thank you for that wonderful question, yeah. Dan. I, I know it was a bit of a fun one, but I figured one, it was Dan. is the end of the year. We, it was a good time for a fun one. I'll so thank it. you for sending that <laughs> one uh, in. And so with that, that is us done for this episode and for this year. Boom chicka wow wow. <laughs> <laughs> Boom chicka wow wow. That's how you say it. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> that is how you say it. Yeah. That's how I said it. Apparently. Um, you sure did. Uh, yep. And so with that, folks, I hope you all enjoyed this episode. I hope you all enjoyed this season. I hope you all, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. Find us if you want to listen to more episodes um, or, you know, even if you don't, if you want to follow us on social media, post some photos, keep up to date. You can find us on Instagram. I think we still have a Twitter, but also Twitter's not even Twitter anymore. Um, but it's 
at Curiosity Rat uh, is the handle. Instagram is our most active. We do also have a Facebook page. Um, and if you find yourself, you know, thinking that we're amazing, admiring how much fucking effort and work we put into this podcast and, you know, how much we care about making this sort of information free and accessible to anyone that, you know, can listen to podcasts, um, find us on Spotify and wherever you get your pods, um, then, you know. Well, actually, we're just on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I oh, okay. Figured out how to Fair. get it on other podcast platforms. So. But I, I don't want to. I don't want people to go out on like Google Podcasts or something and not be able to find. I mean, you us, can also search. We're not there Podbean and find it. So, but yes, the point is, yeah. um, if you appreciate how much work we do and you find yourself with a little bit of, you know, disposable income, I guess I know nobody, <laughs> nobody does this time of year. But if you appreciate our work and you want to be able to give us money in any way, shape, or form, even if it's just like a tiny little amount, we do have a Patreon. You can find us, Curiosity Killed the Rat, on Patreon, and like. You know, no pressure, no big deal, but we do put a lot of work into this. So anything that you and can do. And after three give, years, four years, our uh, Google Drive is starting to run out of space. I know. So and we, we pay for the large, like, you know, we already pay for more storage yeah. than the free Google Drive. So we're just going to have to. Yeah. Um, we'll figure something out. So, yeah, with that, folks, look after yourselves. Stay safe this, you know holiday period this episode's coming out at the end of the holiday period so you know stay safe next holiday period um and yep. stay safe during the non-holiday period just stay safe folks um just stay safe. look after yourselves yeah. no, it's, it's good trust have science cautious optimism have cautious optimism about boom, everything chicka, wow, wow. boom chicka wow wow curiosity kill the rat curiosity kill the rat